0: February 1982. In this episode, we finish up part two of the Flight Simulator Roundup with Chris Olson, where we discuss helicopter flight simulators and one that's a favorite of both of us, Microprose's F-15 Strike Eagle by Sid Meier. Also, thanks to Kevin Savitz, we'll have an announcement of a contest. I've got some other announcements about the podcast and tease some software that I'm writing. We go over the usual magazine coverage, and Michael Glazer of the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast joins us for another review of SoftSide Magazine. This is the Player Missile Podcast, I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 18. Hey, welcome back to the player missile podcast i guess it should be welcome back to me right since i'm the one that hasn't produced one of these for a while a lot of stuff has happened since the last podcast happy veterans day happy armistice day in the rest of the english-speaking world and the rest of europe i think only comparatively recently did i realize that veterans day was really celebrating the end of world war one and as i mentioned before there's a great podcast long podcast as uh, the guys on antic noted they uh tried listening to one of these episodes, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History where uh, he's got a nice six-part series on World War 1 that is cumulatively about I don't know, 20 hours. They're like 3-hour episodes at least. But it's great like me if you've not had any real World War 1 history, it was a great great kind of overview. It's hard, hard to imagine 20 hours being an overview, but yeah, it's uh, even he admits in the podcast that he just touched the surface on a bunch of the theaters of the in the war. But yeah, great great podcast if you're interested in history at all. Also, happy Thanksgiving for those of us in the U.S. Way belated happy Thanksgiving to those of you in Canada. Happy Marmite Day in the U.K. Who am I kidding? It's always Marmite Day in the U.K. If you never tried Marmite, stop the podcast and try it now, and you're back. Yeah, it's the foulest thing ever, isn't it? Yeah, it's awful. Happy Portland Retro Gaming Expo. I'll include a link in the show notes to the uh, pictures from the Atari Age booth. I didn't get to go to uh, the Retro Gaming Expo this year, I went last year, and Atari Age was not there last year. And they were there this year, and I didn't get to go. So kind of bummed that I missed them. That would have been fun to see that booth. Also fun to see Kevin Savitz. He went there, and one of his interview subjects, Thomas Cherryholmes, went there as well. And I guess they saw some fun Atari stuff. Yeah, disappointed I wasn't there, but hopefully I'll be able to go next year. That's a great show. Also, in the meantime, the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast has been released. Listen to the first episode, or I guess it's episode zero, the zeroth episode... It's the introductory episode, and there's a great background section on the 8-bits. Not only the XCGS, but the whole 8-bit line and then the technology behind it. Um, Bill Kendrick did a really great job on that. They haven't decided what the first game they're going to review on their first episode, so we'll see what it goes, but they are going to focus on the cartridges, at least for the time being. But uh, the XCGS, of course, has an SIO plug, and so it can read regular disc-based games. You plug a disk drive right in, and you're ready to go. Yeah, they seem to call it the Zegs. I had never, I always thought of it as the XEGS. So I don't know if I'll ever be able to change and call it the Zegs, but I will defer to them. They're the experts. I will still call it XEGS. And also in the meantime, on the Atari Age Two Worthy Video Games thread, there was a, a bunch of new podcasts listed. One of the ones that I thought might be interesting was the uh, new one called They Create Worlds, which is a video game history, not, you know, Atari specific, but still. Um, so I listened to the first couple of episodes and they are, they are very detailed. Their sort of shtick, I guess, is the um, idea looking at it from a historical perspective that this uh, one of the guys is actually has a very detailed blog and is going to publish a book about it. So if you're into detailed histories of video game companies and stuff, I'm only through two episodes, but so far it's great and I would recommend that. Well, all right, let's do a little feedback since it's been quite a while. I've got quite a bit of feedback to go through. First, friend of the show, Pete Fletcher, noted that I didn't have a copy of DeRay Atari and he extremely kindly mailed me his extra copy. So now I have a physical copy of DeRay Atari. So thanks. That's that's amazing, Pete. That's a that's really awesome gift. Thank you very much. And in case somebody else doesn't have a copy, Kevin Savitz offered me another copy. So i got to figure out how to give this away. It's But anyway, thanks to Kevin for... Giving me the opportunity to give this away, to give away another copy of Dairy Atari. His stipulation was it's gotta go to somebody who's gonna use it for programming, so we gotta find out somebody who wants to get into into 8-bit programming. So we'll have to figure out how to do it. I have to figure out some contest or some, yeah, some way to get it to somebody who wants to do some programming. Gonna have to have a contest to figure out what the contest is. Alex Santos on Twitter mentioned an interview he discovered with uh, Donna Bailey, the Centipede co-creator. So I'll post a link to that. Jim Fullerton also on Twitter. I mentioned there was a Commodore monitor that a lot of Atari people wanted, and uh, but I couldn't remember the model number. And he said it was the seventeen oh one. And he said that was the only Commodore thing he wanted. <laughs> Which yeah, I agree. That was a that was a nice monitor. You know, as I'm going through the magazines, whatever, I see something that's a productivity related software. I always mention Wade's podcast and a couple things I was wondering if he covered. So Wade sent me a note that he has covered SynFile Plus and the uh, File Manager eight hundred that I had mentioned uh, was the predecessor to SynFile Plus. The Home Filing Manager is season two, episode four which by now is out. And he said that the uh, Atari bookkeeper is in the queue. I got an email from Bill Kendrick, one of the hosts of the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. About episode 16, I was talking about maze generation. And he said it reminds him of a compute game that he typed in as a kid from Compute's first book of Atari called Hidden Maze. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. So he said, uh, the maze is generated in screen memory. First, it draws a solid rectangle, odd by odd. And if I recall correctly, it was Graphics 1, so they filled the screen with... Uh, 19 by 23 blocks. Then it started at the top left, traverse the maze and leave the trail of breadcrumbs. And so he, and then Bill goes into some detail about this. Basically the method of making the maze is called depth first searching or carving. And he says, there's a great little animation over at Wikipedia, the link to which I will include in the show notes. And if that weren't enough, he's made some versions of this uh, off for the web. And so I've got more links in the show notes for stuff that he's created. So thanks Bill. So yeah, again, go listen to Bill on the XEGS cart by cart podcast. And I also interviewed Bill. When was that? Way back in Episode 7, he did some homebrew called GemDrop, and then he's updated it recently using C in the CC65 compiler. So links galore in the show notes. Bill Lang and Dan Boris both sent in feedback about this game I discussed, Fantasyland 2041. It was something I'd never really heard of, and I you know, didn't find a lot of detail about on the web, and so uh, Bill sent me actually the six disk images and uh, some screenshots and stuff. i try to get those put up on Atari Mania. And Dan mentioned that he had it, Back then, uh, he uh, got it pirated like uh, like I tended to get my stuff. And he said it was a top-down role-playing game, similar to Ultima series, but without as much depth. And he said what it lacked in depth, it tried to make up for its size. That said each disc was a different world, and each scrolling section of the map was 128 by 96 characters, and there were 25 total sections in the game. And he said, I've actually been working on a pro- project to port this game to Windows. I've been documenting the source, which is an Atari BASIC, and I've created a map viewer for it. Both Bill and Dan noted that uh, one of the programmers of, for Crystalware, although not in this game, was Mark Benioff, who is now the CEO of Salesforce.com and worth like billions and stuff. So yeah, didn't get rich on Atari games, but used as a stepping stone, I guess. So thanks both to the, for the feedback on, on that game. I would never really heard much about it, and so it's nice to have a little more info. Got an email from friend of the show, Siegfried Lentz. He said, as you were reviewing my all-time favorite single-player Atari game, I have to drop a few lines. I brought Seamus after reading a review in Compute Magazine described it as the Berserk-type game, and as I had a grand total of three games, I played Seamus a lot. And after some time, I knew the levels by heart. I don't think I ever spent as much time with a single game ever after. Yeah, you know, he says he got good enough to to wrap it, so he, he completed all the zones and went back. Total score of 126,770. Yikes, that's good. And he said he never really liked the Berserk-Robotron sort of comparison because he found that there was much deeper gameplay, you know, and there was more stuff to accomplish than just shooting. Which, yeah, I, I agree with. But it's sort of a zero-level approximation. It's, it's kind of a, appropriate. He said, I'm afraid relying on the C64 review misses out on some gameplay peculiarities of the Atari version. I did try the C64 version at, at a friend's house back then and retried it again after hearing the podcast. I didn't like it then. I didn't change my mind today. <laughs> but he has a whole list of differences, among which the biggest is, is the C64 version has multiple mazes, or has multiple sets of mazes, multiple levels, and the Atari version doesn't, so that would be a great project to convert, he says, which I agree he notes that, uh, in the Atari version, there's a gap between the, your character's head and his hat. And actually shots can pass through that enemy shot. So you can like avoid shots by positioning your, <laughs> your head in the right place. Whereas the Commodore 64 version doesn't have that. And so it's true. The 64 version is a port and there's always differences on the ports of games, but it was nice having that cross-pollination with, uh, Rob O'Hara's Castle podcast. That way I didn't have to do the review. <laughs> well, thanks you read. Thanks for all those differences. Um, I have not played the C64 version, and actually I've never even tried setting up the Vice emulator. I suppose I should, you know, there's a lot of games that are coming up now that'll get reused on both platforms. Yeah, and as the C64 gets um, gets released here soon in the podcast timeline, I do want to learn more about it and kind of see, you know, some of the major differences. So anyway, yep, thanks again to the Greed. Friend of the show Adam Triumphal emailed me asking me about the my Fest talk and if the video was available. Kevin Savas was posting all of them, but somehow mine was the only one that had audio recording problems, and so it won't be published. I blame Quinn Dunkey. Her Boo Atari shenanigans must have caused it, because I find it entirely too convenient that the only Atari talk is the one that had issues. It's the vast Apple conspiracy trying to keep the Atari down. Friend of the show, Kevin Lund sent me a note about the Sandlander Computer Club. He just went to the meeting just um, here the 1st of December, and I'll include a link to the Facebook page, and so there's pictures of the an 815 disk drive that one of the members brought. I'm going to try to make the January meeting of the San Leandro Computer Club. It's going to be Tuesday, January 5th, 2016. If you're in the Bay Area, maybe we can have a little podcast meetup there as well. It's, yeah, in San Leandro, which is sort of just south of the Oakland International Airport. They meet at the public library. I'll include a link to their uh, webpage as well. So thanks for all the feedback, everybody. For Listen to Written Programs, I am going to... Challenge people to enter the Retro Challenge with me in January. I don't know what I'm going to write yet, but I definitely want to try to write something. So, maybe we can get a whole bunch of entries for the Retro Challenge that are focused on the Atari. No new progress on the main cabinet. I still have Pac-Man in there. My neighbor still has the high score, so I'm still trying to beat that. But uh, I think I'm going to resort to learning some patterns. I found a link on YouTube to some uh, perfect Pac-Man patterns. So I think I might try to memorize some of those and just get his high score off there. For some reason, I don't know why, I'm better at Miss Pac-Man than Pac-Man. Which seems weird because Pac-Man is like predictable, but I, yeah, I don't know why. But my high score in Miss Pac-Man is like, you know, 50,000 or something. And my high score in Pac-Man, I still haven't gotten 16,000 yet. But I'll include a link in the show notes to those uh, perfect Pac-Man patterns. Oh, and if you were thinking about building a MAME with the Raspberry Pi, someone with a glutton for punishment compiled MAME 164, which is the most recent, or at least maybe the almost most recent version. Um, on the Raspberry Pi 2, and <laughs> ran it. And As, as MAME sort of progresses, the emulation theoretically gets more accurate, but the speed also goes down. And so this uh, Raspberry Pi user compiled it and said it was super slow. So yeah, you're not really going to run modern MAMes on a Raspberry Pi 2. Okay, let's talk some tech. And let's talk Star Raiders. As you might remember, I was trying to speed up Star Raiders by uh, using some log tables. So if you follow Twitter at all, Steve Hales found the source for Star Raiders, a printed source. Steve Hales, the author of Fort Apocalypse, among others. And I helped Steve get in contact with Kevin Savitz, who scanned all of the documents, put them on archive.org. And there was a big thread on Atari Age, which I'll link to in the show notes, where people started dissecting the source. And as I was working on it too, I it was much easier working from source code to figure out what was going on. I got as far as instrumenting some of the division routines to try to figure out what was going on. And I got a little, I made a little progress, but Atari age user Ferron, who also conveniently is the author of the Altira emulator, went through at a great speed and implemented a log table lookup. And so you can play his version. I've uh, got links to the show notes. It's much improved. And then you go back and play the old version. And you're like, holy cow. It's like molasses or what is that? Treacle in uh, the UK. I just learned that. So yeah, it's a great improvement. And congratulations to Farron for doing that. It's a nice gift to the community. And thus ends my quest to deal with Star Raiders. Honestly, I must confess a little bit of disappointment that I wasn't the one to, to do it. But on the other hand, you know, I got I spent a lot of time and I didn't get that far. I didn't get as far as I thought I would. And I guess I, I just don't understand 6502 programming well enough. I looked at the source that Farron posted and I was like, wow, that's that's really advanced. I mean, that's, that is that is a major program. And it's, well, as you would expect by somebody who can create a, an entire emulator. So yeah, my hat's off. Uh, it's just a great programming effort, and, you know, I'm sort of selfishly disappointed that I couldn't do it, but on the other hand, it's out there now, and it's very well done. So yeah, cheers. It does make me want to do some more coding, though. I've kind of gotten the bug, and I'll have an announcement about that later on in the podcast. But now it's time to get on to the magazines. First one we'll look at is Byte Magazine for February 1982. It's volume 7, number 2. 2 bucks 95 in the US, 3 bucks 50 Canadian. Yeah, there's no analog this month. And we're getting close to Antic. Antic's a couple months away. But yeah, if you look at the magazine grid that I've got on the website, we've got got five magazines from me, and Michael Glazer of the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast is going to have soft side. So back to Byte, another great cover by Robert Tinney. This is looking out on a winter scene. Looking through the window, and you can see a sort of fireplace in the in the foreground and the win- window in the background. But the window is a sort of TRSAE Model 1-style computer, the all-in-one monitor and keyboard with the fire burning inside and the chimney going up. Much better than last month's cover, which is that IBM PC. In the table of contents, the only mention of the Atari is the Atari tutorial part six, Atari basic. Some of the interesting things are uh, there's a homebrew graphics digitizer and an input output primer. Some people say primer, but I think that's odd, so I say primer. And there's a few other things we'll get to as we go. So let's check it out. You'll not be surprised to learn that there's a large number of ads in this, in this magazine, including there's an ad from Percom who've uh, made disk drives for the Atari. There's a Percom 10-megabyte hard disk system. Enormous storage capacity, plus high speed. 40 times faster than single-density floppy disks. Can you imagine filling up 10 megabytes of data? Wow. I never had a hard disk for my machine. I didn't even know that I saw one, actually, for the Ataris. I never even had a hard disk for my ST. I was all floppy-based. The first hard disk I got was when I got into the PC clone era. Here's an ad for the Osborne. It's the suitcase computer, the luggable... With a teeny little screen in the middle, like, what, five-inch diagonal screen? it's kind of a side. I just started watching Halt and Catch Fire. I'm in, in the middle of season one, and they're, you know, it's this fictional sort of company setup. I I can't quite tell, because they mentioned Compact, so it's not supposed to be Compact. And they're trying to build this computer, and they're gonna, it's going to be a portable, and they're working on the BIOS and stuff. And um, honestly, I've heard season two is better, so I'm just kind of slogging my way through season one, not super enjoying it yet. But anyway, there's an article about building a computerized weather station. And nowadays, of course, they have these just like sort of purpose built little kits you can get for I don't know thirty bucks or something and you can wirelessly transmit all the stuff to your phone and computer. But here they're talking about building you know anemometer and writing all the creating all the circuits themselves, as Byte to sort of want to do they have a lot of technical detail. Which so I recall the homebrew graphics digitizer. And so this is a digitizer in terms of it's like a sort of a pen based thing we have got these arms with hinges and you're sort of touching points on a paper in order to digitize something. Not not like a digitizer in terms of a camera. So it's kind of like you're a, a draftsman digitizing points to enter them in. And so they're using potentiometers to measure the, the change in angle of these, these two little arms. And from that, knowing a fixed point and a simple linear transformation, you can tell what points go where, and then you can map them to a computer point on a screen. So it's really a pretty simple circuit, and uh, there's a little, not much program needed. That's oh, really surprisingly compact. Still beyond my means, but um, it's an interesting article. Here we go, Atari Tutorial Part 6, Atari BASIC. This is by Lane Winner of Atari Inc. 1265 Borregas Ave in Sunnyvale. So it's 8K BASIC and they cheated a little bit. They put 2K of the math code right into the OS. So the floating point stuff is available for any language, not just BASIC. It says, to use Atari BASIC effectively, you must know its strengths and weaknesses. Strengths are, it supports the OS graphics, it uh, supports the hardware, you know, the the sound, the stick and the paddle, it has simple interfacing to the Assembly language, Basic's in ROM, you can support the peripherals. And the weaknesses are everything's a floating point, there are no integers. So that reduces the speed by quite a bit. And it doesn't have two dimensional arrays, only one, 1D one arrays. So you've got to do your own calculations if you want to do 2D stuff. Atari Basic, I assume, like other basics, is, is tokenized. And so it goes through some description of how the language is tokenized from the input text. Interesting, one of the differences of Atari Basic from standard Microsoft Basic is that the lines are interpreted as you hit return. And so you get syntax errors immediately. You don't have to run them to find syntax errors. I always thought that was a very useful feature. And it actually has a whole table listing of all the tokens. So if you wanted to write a detokenizer, it's right here for you. There's a section on improving program performance. One of the things about Atari, and maybe all basics, I'm not quite sure, is that in order to go to a line number, it has to search from the beginning of the whole file. So if if you have any loops that are called frequently, if you put them in the beginning of the program, the whole program will run faster. And it goes through a whole bunch of suggestions. And then finally it says... If that's not speeding it up enough, use assembly language. So a very in-depth article about Atari BASIC, well worth a reading, even if you are using like Turbo BASIC XL, which is based on Atari BASIC, but, you know, runs faster. Still the same sort of compatibility features are available if you read this. So a 26-page article, and yep, about half of it is ads. Not that you're surprised. There's an article on the input-output primer. Part 1, what is I.O.? So input-output is how you get stuff to the computer so it can process, and the output is how you get stuff back, the results. Talks about memory mapped IO about how you like sort of put chips right on the memory address so you can address them. That's how Atari uses the uh, um, ANTIC. You, know, you poke to particular addresses in order for it to do stuff rather than having some call. I think the Z eighty processor uses um, some method. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about the Z eighty, but I don't think it uses memory map stuff. At least looking at the Pac Man source code briefly, uh, it seemed there were like register level commands or like assembly level commands that are- that you could just to talk to the hardware but perhaps some Z80 expert can enlighten me. And it's a big glossary uh, of I.O. terms. that like covers parts of eight pages, although you wouldn't be surprised to know there are a few ads in between. There's a really technical article about how to build an EEPROM emulator, which is a lot of circuit diagrams. In the byte line section, there's a little snippet, a little column about Apple Computer trying to eliminate what is now referred to as software protection. Mike Markula, who was the president at the time, said that users should be allowed to have as many copies of software programs as necessary to do the application. And the article says, ironically seated at the table was a representative from Atari, which has been seen advertising that it will pursue and legally prosecute anyone caught unlawfully copying its software. (laughs) You've heard me talk about those ads for many months in the podcast. And that's about it for the Byte magazine. There's, I didn't notice this before, there's an unclassified ad section in the back and there's a guy advertising an Atari 400 with 8K and a set of paddles, just like new. Or we'll trade the $400 and $200 bucks for an Atari 800 in great condition. Kentwood, win Michigan. I wonder if he had success uh, advertising a national, magazine, local stuff. I hmm. don't know. No follow-up. And on the back cover, there's a, an ad for the uh, one of the little pocket computers that Radio Shack had. I always wanted one of these. I ended up getting a sort of a similar form factor computer, kind of wide and, and narrow, that had some limited programming capability, but it was not a Radio Shack. But I always wanted one of these. And... Isaac Asimov, one of my favorite authors, was advertising it. it. says, a few years ago, the ID of a computer you could put in your pocket was just science fiction. Let's check out the compute. This is February 1982, issue number 20, volume 4, number 2. $2.50 on the cover price. They have a usual watercolor-style cover. The lead item in the um, on the front cover looks to be Programming Your Home Insurance Inventory. And then the watercolor is of sort of a moose head on the wall that's tagged with a little card that says moose- There's a shelf with a bowling ball, tagged bowling ball, an Apple II-ish computer, tagged computer, and a little old-timey picture, tagged gramps. Also on the cover, Atari player missile graphics made easy. Well, we will be the judge of that. In the table of contents, the only Atari-specific stuff is in the Atari Gazette, which we will get to. They have a typical Apple Gazette, Atari Gazette, OSI Gazette makes a little bit of a return. And there's this VIC-20 update, but not quite a Gazette, I guess. On the next page, they're advertising Compute's first book of Atari. Only $12.95, plus $2 shipping and handling. This is not one that I have or had. Kevin Savitz kindly sent me the second book of Atari, so I've got that one. And we'll make a note of that when it shows up in the podcast timeline. In the editor's notes section, they have a little thing called the Hardware Wars, where it says Atari Inc. just slashed the suggested retail price of the 800 system from 1080 to 899 And Commodore is currently introducing two new machines that promise to be quite competitive in the personal market shown at the CES in Las Vegas in January, a game computer with plug-in cartridges and flat keyboard for around 150 and then the high-end, a 64K color graphics computer to retail for less than $600. That would be the Commodore 64. So, yep, our doom is coming. And the first thing I always notice about flipping through the compute after it's coming off the Byte magazine is the relative absence of ads. You know, the Byte is just like, Chock full ads. It's really like 75% ads when you look at a page. You know, there's always, there's a little bit of article and there's a, some ad on that page and then full page facing ad. Whereas this one, it's less than, much less than one to two, you know, ads to text. The program listings kind of help, you know, pad out that total there because they, they do put a lot of program listings that they don't in Byte. But even so, you know, Byte is, is much more ad driven. It's not to say that's a bad thing. It's just, it's just interesting. There's a little article called Multitask, a real time multitasking operating system emulator. You know, computers of this time are single-tasking, and you essentially take over the whole computer to do whatever you want. You know, now we have multiple programs open, and there's so many system programs in the background, there's you know hundreds of tasks running at any one time. But back then, in the early 80s, this was not a common situation. You know, Then you made frames and stuff, and you could get time-shared systems. But the article begins saying that most micros spend 99% of their existence in loops waiting for a key press or an interrupt. It says this is a basic program that allows you to Simulate how many seemingly concurrent operations can occur with uh, fast response time to the stuff from the outside world. So keep in mind this is an emulator, to actually be realized the concepts would have to be written in machine code form. It seemed to be some sort of queue system where the events are, are stacked up on a queue and the process they're popped off of the top of the queue as, it, as it, it's able to be processed. But it's really just, again, just a simulator, not an actual working multitasking system. Next is the Apple Gazette, with its puny high-res graphics plotting routine... I scoff at 280 by 192 resolution. And then we come to the Atari Gazette with its amazing 320 by 192 resolution. The Inside Atari by w- Bill Wilkinson is also about I.O. It says this month, month marks the end of my series on Atari I.O. Doesn't mean we'll not continue to discuss it, but I, fin- I feel I finished my formal presentation of the material. And so this is I.O. part four and it says graphics. So yes, you can actually do drawing on the screen using the I.O. routines. This is the S graphics driver. And just like anything else, the S graphics driver could be replaced to do something else. It's clearly not as it's not the fastest way to access graphics. Because, you know, you have to load up all these IOCB registers with stuff, jump to the command, or JSR to the subroutine, and then it'll come back. So, you know, it's much faster, obviously, to write stuff directly to the screen. There's also a section here on Inside Basic Part 2, talking about some of the syntax tables and the tokenized, you know, how the basic is tokenized. Kind of going along well with the byte article, we read... Earlier. Next we have an article, Player Missile Graphics Made Easy. Authors are listed as T Sack and S. Meyer from Baltimore, Maryland, and I wonder if this is Sid Meyer. So this is a machine language subroutine that you can use from BASIC. Saying you don't need to know machine language, just use this subroutine essentially. So the idea basically is to move during the vertical blank so you don't get any tearing. And then use this program to move them all around. It goes in a little bit about the you know the sort of the memory layout of player missile allocation, and then yeah, it jumps on a little program. It's a little bit, it's about a 40 line basic program to type in. That's mostly just pokes and data statements, but it does include a little bit of a demo in order to see how this subroutine is used. So the made easy part of this is they set up some locations in page six where you can just poke and tell it to put the player at an X and Y location. And it, it does all this stuff through your machine language. So you don't have to worry about, you know, moving it up and down or having a separate subroutine to shift the data up and down. So yeah, that is a little bit easier. There's a game review of Eastern Front, which we've already talked about there's a little snippet of a program clearing memory, basically it's using the trick of dimensioning a string and using the string functions to set the memory to some value. In one of the previous episodes, uh, there was an article about how you can actually trick it to set the address of the, the string to some you know, some place in physical memory and to have that the basic f- routines for string operations to um, quickly set memory. Anytime you have a basic loop it's going to be super slow because you've got to interpret every little everything in the loop. And if you can just shove everything off to machine language, it's you know super fast. There's a review of the, co- of the program Text Wizard. It's called the Compute Overview, where they have several reviewers talk about it. Text Wizard, Wizard was written by DataSoft. Wade has not reviewed it, but he's reviewed the follow-on to it called Letter Wizard. He also reviewed Spell Wizard back in season one. Again, I'm out of my depth, so I will let Wade continue to review the productivity stuff. There's another article here. Put graphics modes one and two at the bottom of your screen, so you know we're in basic. And you type graphics, I don't know four or something, you'll get the the top portion of the screen will be graphics, and the bottom four lines will be text. Graphics mode zero. So this is a way to change that. So you have uh, graphics modes one or two at the bottom of the screen, and basically you're just modifying the display list. There's an article Atari Pilot at the Helm by Patricia Tubbs. She was field testing the uh, pilot language at her school district, apparently. And at Sunnyvale, California, also, so that would make it uh, a little bit easier since Atari's right next door. It even has a little listing of a pilot. I've never seen a pilot program before, so it's, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. It doesn't look like, yeah, basic or, I, I guess it's related to logo, right? So I, I don't really know what logo looks like, but yeah, there's a listing in here. Apparently she worked with fifth grade students, and they had no difficulty Learning quickly to draw pictures, manipulate text, add sound effects to their programs. I see this language as the first language that beginning programmers should learn. It is motivating and a good basis for learning other computer programming languages. Oh yeah, and then there's an example of a longer program, like a quiz program. There's our program to do moire patterns in uh, high res graphics. And there's another one, put a rainbow in your Atari, which is one of those where you use a displayless interrupt to change the color and so you get a, a bunch of colors on the screen once more, more than you can get normally. And it's got a little example of a dis- displayless interrupt. The machine language, and the rest of the program is basic. And that looks like it's it for the Atari Gazette. The OSI Gazette is next, followed by the PET Gazette, which we will dutifully ignore, and the VIC-20 update, which we'll probably also ignore as well. In the new product section, there's a, a calendar and clock system for small computers with a, a serial-based real-time clock. And it shows it shows the picture. It looks a lot like the old Hayes modems look like, except in, in the front, there's just a LED display, and it's showing the date and the time. And that's about it for the compute. And no compute would be complete without a creepy photo of William Shatner advertising the Commodore computer on the back cover. I mean, seriously, if you've not checked out this picture, you got to check it out. It's like, he's lit from the side, and so half his face is kind of in shadow. And yeah, it looks like he just like stepped out. He's always missing is like a knife, you know, raised over his head to come at you. Not the most effective picture of somebody. Good hair, though. All right, let's look at computer and video games. This is from February 1982, cover price of 75p. An odd sort of organic-looking spaceship on the cover reminds me of the guy oh, my, the name escapes me if you've seen the movie um dune which if you're a fan of science fiction at all it's just an amazing documentary about this sort of abortive attempt to create the movie dune in you know years before star wars just this epic space opera by this this sort of I don't know what do you call it style very sort of avant-garde maybe I don't know but a not mainstream style let's put it that way maybe anyway, there's an artist um shoot almost had the name boy, I wish you could just, like, hit some button and pause time for a minute and look something up. Yeah, Chris Foss was his name. And actually, I don't think it's quite his style, but it's that similar sort of style of 70s spaceship art. And at the risk of going a little bit further down this tangent, there's a great set of books that I read back in the 70s that maybe you're familiar with called the Terran Trade Authority, where they had all these just big picture books of space spaceships and sort of the same kind of style, sort of organic style oddball not square you know those kind of things they had the backstory about shoot i think like the first interstellar contact was in like 1997 or something i'm like yeah they kind of missed the boat on that one no pun intended all right where were we back to computer and video games not much atari specific coverage you want to search on atari on the magazine and it comes up with about 10 hits in the whole magazine in the arcade action section there's another know your creatures quiz which is kind of fun to look at i actually got most of these this time they have programs for all variety of systems the apple II, the nascom the zx81 the TRS-80, it's the Sharp MZ80K computer. This looks like it runs a dialogue to Microsoft BASIC, Commodore PET. But yeah, not much an Atari specific, although interestingly the whole back cover is an ad for a company called Maplin, which apparently it's just a sort of image and some text, there's no like prices or anything, apparently it's a reseller and it says uh, when you decide to buy an Atari, choosing one of the most advanced personal computers there is, and we decide to buy an Atari from Maplin, you've made the the best choice of all because Maplin supports Atari, totally. Maplin Electronics Supplies Limited in Essex. As a late update, Antic interview episode number 102 with Anthony Jones. He was at Atari UK, and he goes into some detail about Maplin as them being the distributor of Atari stuff in the UK. So yeah, for more info on Maplin, check out that uh, Antic interview. So it seems like Atari might have a bigger presence, presence in the magazine eventually, but yeah, certainly not right now. So yeah, not much of a look at this magazine, but uh, you yeah, know what little love there was, it was basic and basic little games and for various machines, but nothing that I'm super interested in right now. But we'll get to it eventually, and um, of course eventually, yeah, my friend Neil gets published in this magazine, so uh, definitely looking forward to seeing that. On to the Creative Computing, February 1982, Volume Eight, Number Two, two bucks ninety-five on the cover price. It's kind of a pale blue cover with Creative Computing and its typical sort of unique script font. I Actually, wouldn't call that script, would you? It was just kind of like a serif font. There's a red sash on the cover. It says, great graphics for your computer. So it looks like all about graphics. There's printers and graphics, converting graphics between machines, 3D graphics, Atari Player Missile Design Aid. we got some other Player Missile stuff in this one, too. And and interestingly, in two places on this cover, I don't know if this is a mistake or what, but on the upper left, sort of there's this diagonal or diamond-shaped image in the the center of, like, uh, it almost looks like a buzzard made out of stained glass and a magnifying glass looking through the center instead of one of the feathers on the wings that you can see through the magnifying glass that is actually a computer chip. But on, on the upper left of that diamond, it says the future of personal computing, views of six experts. And on the lower right, it says the future of personal computing, the views of six experts. So I don't know if that was just a editing mistake or they missed it or what, but hey, open the front cover, creepy William Shatner picture. And the next page is an ad for Defense Command It's some software by Big Five Software. And one of the recent Antic interviews was with Bill Hogue, who's the same guy who wrote Minor 2049er. I'll include a link to that interview in the show notes. In the table of contents, the only other thing than Outpost Atari for the Atari itself is the Atari Graphics Composer in the Evaluations and Profiles section. But there are quite a number of references to the Atari when you search for it in the text, so we'll see what those are all about. There's an article on it. It says, Star Raiders for the Color Computer... It says, Project Nebula is a color computer version of the Atari Star Raiders game published by Radio Shack and requiring 4K RAM in your color computer. The review says, on the whole, Project Nebula is an adequate program. The game is good, not great, and it has a reasonable amount of entertainment value. I forget, listening to um, the GoGo Crew podcast, I think the resolution is like 256 by 192 or something for high res. I don't remember. Here we get the Atari Graphics Composer. is a program by Versa Computing. It's a graphics utility. It's a set of utilities that performs five main functions, high-res drawing, medium-res drawing, text writing, geometric figure creation, and player creation. So it's got regular graphics commands to draw like static screens, but it says the, um, the player creation part of this program is potentially the most valuable utility on the disk. It prevents the user with a grid for designing players and utilities to help with the animation of multiple like, frames of the players. Mostly positive reviews, saying anyone doing or planning to do graphics work on the Atari should seriously consider the Atari graphics composer. There's an article in the personal computer industry, and the opening paragraph says, This year, the personal computer market in the U.S. is about the same size as the total market for potato chips. If we continue our, at our annual 50% growth rate next year, in 1982, the personal computer market will be half the size of the pet food market. and in 1983, the personal computer market should be creeping up on pantyhose at $3 billion. So this was a 1981 meeting of the uh, Boston Computer Society's Forum on the Future of Personal Computing. Bill Gates was at this meeting. Mike Marklow was at this meeting. John Shirley, VP of Radio Shack Computer Division. Nigel Sorrell, who was apparently the executive VP of Sinclair, among others, had like 18 attendees. Peter Rosenthal, director of the Business Planning and Development, was the Atari representative. And said, Rosenthal reiterated Atari's commitment to the home market and underscored the importance of games... By comparing the total sales of Space Invaders, which is two point five million copies, to those of Visicalc, one hundred fifty thousand copies, so Atari digging their own grave here with the games references, sort of yeah, just this strategy of well, not knowing what the strategy was really, I guess you know, are we a games machine? Are we a productivity machine? Are we both? How do we advertise this? I mean, the the stuff that Atari struggles with, struggled with. But, you know, they're making this up as they went, I guess, and I guess they thought games would be the foothold to get people in, and then people would know that a computer could do more. Ah, who knows, but easy to criticize in hindsight, but at the time, you know, Atari was one of the biggest companies in the US at this time. This is pre-crash. Oh well. Things we could do if we could go back. There's an article called Picture Packer Revisited, and I think I missed this one in the June 81, but this is a, it's an Apple program, so it's not entirely applicable but it's just interesting in that it's trying to they're trying to figure out ways to save space and when you save a high res picture to screen or from screen to disk and essentially it's talking about run length encoding which is like the idea that multiple consecutive things you know pictures or pixels or bytes or whatever if they're the same they can be compressed down into like uh, the number of times it's going to repeat and the value so this is kind of a, a very simple compression routine and yet one that still works fairly well with kind of limited color palette images and so again, this is Apple specific, but it's just kind of an interesting read, especially if you're into sort of algorithm development, kind of like I am. More Apple stuff, blah blah blah. There's a big article on graphics conversion, but it's for the TRS-80, Apple, and PET, so com- converting stuff among those three machines. And finally, we get to some Atari stuff. The Player Missile Design Aid by Tom Gurak. So it's a grid-based program, and you're essentially using the you're using the joystick and the keyboard to turn bits on and off. But there's there's other functions. There's like line drawing stuff. There's shift and rotate commands, there's insert, blank lines, and then it can produce like basic listings and stuff, poke values. Yeah, it looks like a nice little program. The full listing in basic is also included. It's about a page and a half. Uh, just over a page, I guess. It's an article on Atari graphics modes 1 and 2. The title of the article is, Lose Your Hearts for Greater Graphics Control. And so that's, you know, when you're using graphics modes 1 and 2, you can only use half the character set at any one time, because it needs two bits to display the colors, and there's only... So you're left with six bits to work with. That's only 64 combinations, so you can't get all 128 characters plus inverse. You've got to cut it down. So they, they put the graphics characters in lowercase in one half, and then the uppercase and symbols in the other half, and you have to choose which one of those you want at any one time. So yeah, a common issue would be if you're going to flip over to one of those graphics modes, the screen gets full of hearts. So it's, <laughs> people who didn't have Atari wouldn't know what, the, what they were talking about, but yeah, we're we're quite familiar with a screen full of hearts. Hearts, of course, being the graphics character, Zero. And then we come to the Outpost Atari. This is basically a big question and answer column where they're going through and answering a bunch of stuff they received from the previous several months of their um, their articles. But yeah, they probably answer about 20 or 25 questions. And it's probably more interesting at the time than it is now. Like, one of the questions is, I have 32K, should I get 48K? And the answer is, maybe. It's like, well, you know, today is like, you just, you know, you can max out your emulator, you don't have to worry about it. But So not the most compelling Atari Outpost of the year, I don't think. And that's about it for the creative computing. And the final magazine I'll cover this month, where we still have Michael Glazer's Soft Side coming up next, this is the Micro, the 6502 6809 Journal, February 1982, number 45, 2 bucks 50 on the cover price. And I'm now not surprised anymore that we see a picture of you sitting inside the monitor of some machine looking out over the keyboard, the computer sitting on a seashore, and it there's a suspension bridge in the background, and the looks like a train bridge on the right. And I'm not exactly sure what that has to do with the magazine, but it says... Uh, so the primary thing on the cover is the fourth feature. I'm talking about the fourth language. And it does say, using Atari's countdown timers. So that's one. Utilities for the color computer and OSI feature. Table of contents lists an additional Atari uh, item. It's the column From Here to Atari by James Caprell We are now T-minus two months from James Caprell's Antic magazine from having the inaugural issue a few articles on some osi stuff but uh, we'll skip right to the using atari's countdown timers article it's by mike doherty from littleton colorado says the atari personal computer systems maintain five countdown timers updated at 1 60th of a second Although these timers are designed for use by the atari os they may be used by basic and assembly language programs and i haven't gotten far enough into Seamus from last week but i think this is how they use it because it doesn't use a vertical blank i think it uses this countdown timer somehow so the OS uses this to for a bunch of stuff. They use the timers to update the real-time clock, to change the attract mode. There have some software countdown timers, uh, updating the, it says the color, joystick, paddle, and light, pen, shadow registers, turn off the keyboard speaker, and perform key repeat functions. So all these occur during the vertical blank. And there's five timers that the system has. In the memory map, it's called CDTM, and then one through five. Three of the timers when they count down. So you apparently set them with initial values, and they count down. And so when three of them get to zero, they set a flag. And then when two of them count down to zero, they there a call is made to some assembly language program. So it must be a vector that you use somewhere. Yeah. So looking at mapping the Atari, the first timer there's a a software vector at uh, 226 hex. So when it gets to zero, it jumps there. And the second timer is 228 hex. So when in doubt, when in doubt, look at mapping the Atari. But yeah, there's some basic and assembly language demos of this. And if I were more interested in Seamus itself, I would, I might poke around some more. But I, I'm, I'm more interested in another game, which we'll talk about later on. You can probably guess what it is if you've listened to me before. There's a cool thing in the magazine. It looks like there was a pullout section. There was a, a data sheet on the 6502. It lists all the instruction sets, the comparisons, the opcodes for each one based on the in uh, based on the addressing mode. Yeah, it's a nice little two page. Must have been maybe it was printed on like index card stock or something has three holes punched in it. I'm glad somebody left it in the version to be scanned there at the uh, Internet Archive. Here's the From Here to Atari column by James Caporell, looking at the DOS 2 file structure in the floppy disk system. It says the format of Atari disks is known as soft-sectored, which means software provides the sector marks rather than the index holes. And so that's why you can use the backside of a floppy without having to cut a new hole in the side, or in the, you know, the face of the floppy disk. So it goes kind of the arrangement of the disk. It's 18 sectors per track, 40 tracks per disk. Seven hundred twenty sectors, one hundred twenty eight bytes per sector, ninety two thousand one hundred sixty bytes per disk surface. And there's caveats, you know, like sector seven twenty is not actually usable by DOS because the the VTALK is offset by one bit, so it can't. The DOS can't actually address sector seven twenty, and it could address sector zero, but sector zero is not actually used because it starts counting from one. So that was a little error in the initial DOS that they would never fixed because they couldn't. They had to maintain backward compatibility. And yeah, the the things you will never forget about. You know, growing up, it's like, I will never forget that. What purpose does it serve now? You know, zero, but it's one of those things that's ingrained so much. He continues to ensure that kind of the layout of this the disk, you know, the first three sectors are the boot sectors. And then sector 360 has the VTalk, and then 361 through 368 have the directory structure. Kind of a, you know, nice little capsule summary of, of inside Atari DOS. It says, we'll continue our discussion of the DOS2 file structure next month. And then there's a section on 4th, and using 4th of the 6502. Reportedly, Forth is a good language to use because it sort of fits well with this sort of this limited register architecture that the 6502 has. I guess Forth is made up kind of like words and paragraphs and stuff, but Forth to me is like opaque. It might as well be just random computer-looking words. I can't figure it out. I remember I tried to learn it back then, and there was this book called Starting Forth that I put on my Christmas list one year, and uh, nobody could find it because they thought it was like a science fiction book. <laughs> The hex editor I used back then, the sort of the disk sector editor, was written in 4th, and I got it from somebody, and I think it was... I wish I could remember the name of it, because it was a great little program. I ended up writing my own sort of basic, but it was never as fast as the one written in 4th. I guess looking at more of the code. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Lisp, I suppose. Not quite the depth of parentheses, but, but I guess they're all based, based on screens. Oh, maybe those parentheses are the comments, actually. Uh, okay. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know I ever learned forth, but it certainly was an interesting language. There's an article about using 4th to control stepper motors... And there's a, another article, the, the Game of Life, Conway's Game of Life. There's two versions, one written in basic and one written in fourth. So it's a nice little comparison if I understood at all anything about fourth, which I don't. But And toward the end of the magazine here, the um, outstanding 6502 bibliography part XLI. What is that? 41. My Roman numerals are out of practice. Yep, and there we go. That's the end of the micro 6502 journal. And no ad from William Shatner. Awesome.
1: Hey Pod Peoples, welcome again to this month's coverage of SoftSide Magazine. It's February 1982, Volume 5, Number 5. Before I talk about this month's cover, I want to tell you that in the past, SoftSide had always given a description of the covers of the magazines. For some reason, they left the description out this time around. I can only assume it's because the editor had no clue what was actually going on in the bizarre cover. So I'm left to interpret what is happening. It features a futuristic dressed woman holding a cat being dropped from a hovering spaceship through a transparent tube. Below the ship are two people standing on a grassy mound, hands raised, neither surprise, worship, or fear. I really can't tell from their facial expressions. In the background are three bright objects streaking towards the ground. The illustration was once again created by Bill Geis. The cover has no text, and since I've already mentioned there's no description, I can only assume the cover is trying to represent Space Rescue, a game featured in this month's magazine. I just wish I knew why that lady brought her cat with her to rescue those people. Input. Unfortunately, there was only one Atari-related user submission this month, but it wasn't really that interesting, so I'm not going to cover it. What I'd like to cover is one titled Copyright. Wesley Lyle from Battle Creek, Michigan has a question for SoftSide. He's a member of a Microcomputer Club, which has its own library that members can make use of. He would also like to type in the programs and make them available to members, but he's worried about infringing upon anyone's rights. SoftSide states that the programs are there for readers' personal use, and they can't authorize the reproduction of programs for others since it would infringe upon the agreement with individual authors. They go on to say the authors put many hours of work into their programs and should be compensated for it. SoftSide actually states that what Kyle's suggesting is a form of piracy and asks if he thinks it's fair to just give away their work. So I completely understand where SoftSide is coming from. They're in the business of selling magazines. The less they sell, the less money everyone makes, but I don't exactly agree with their piracy claims. Just like a public library, he should be able to make the magazines publicly available, just as long as he doesn't make copies. But what about the software? He isn't making copies of the code. He's assembling the code to make it into a functional program. I'd look at this like taking a cake recipe, baking the cake, and then giving pieces to my friends. It's not like Kyle is profiting, so is it truly piracy, or is SoftSide just wanting to make a bit more scratch? A thought-provoking story, but I continued reading on until I noticed code for a game titled Kismet 2. As a kid, I remember playing a game with the same name, so I looked into it. Kismet is a trademark name for a commercial game that was created by E. William Delita, and originally licensed to Lakeside Games. It's currently being produced by Endless Games. SoftSide's Kismet 2 is just a computerized version of that game. But it didn't stop there. Softside sells an Adventure of the Month subscription where subscribers receive an adventure game on taper disc. One of these games called Black Hole Adventure is a straight rip-off from the 1979 sci-fi Disney movie, The Black Hole. Another ad of theirs features a game called Time Lord. Although the main character is not Doctor Who, you play as a character called The Master, which is the arch-enemy of the good doctor. They also mention the TARDIS twice. For all those games, I looked for some mention of the property of to see if there had been some sort of licensing agreement, but I didn't find a trace. Where Kyle's piracy was mostly harmless, SoftSide is directly profiting from the company's intellectual property. Piracy indeed, SoftSide. Entertainment Tomorrow, Lightsabers and Lasers by Alan L. Wold and Fred Dignazio. Alan and Fred discuss Alan's recent experience at Virginia Beach sci-fi convention he attended. Alan knows some LARPing, or live-action role-playing, although they didn't call it that back then, being played and both of them speculating how computers would be used to enhance the experience. Whether the player is being placed in a fully immersive environment, a la Holodeck, or using simulated weapons like swords that record hits or laser tag guns, but ones that actually use real lasers. These tools would help ensure a fair gaming experience as well as one that's as close to the real thing as possible. Harbor Corner by Edward E. Umlor. You know, one thing I like about reviewing old magazines is the chance to either learn or relearn how stuff works. I think I've done you all a disservice by not covering these articles in more detail, so I highly recommend going back and reading the previous Hardware Corner articles. If that interests you, issue 39 covers floppy disk, and 40 covers floppy drives, both in great detail. For this article, the author covers the evolution of the five-and-a-quarter floppy drive as well as TRS-80 DOS. I won't be covering the DOSes, but I will draw a bit of information from previous articles. We start by talking about the 35-track disk drive, the first being the Shugart SA400 mini-floppy created in 1976. Let's take a moment to compare that drive to Atari's first floppy drive, the A10, and the Apple's Disc 2 for a little perspective. So all these drives are single-sided. Uh, the Sugar came in only 35 track version and had 10 sectors per track. It could do single and double density. Single density was 128 bytes per sector and double density was 256. So with single density that give you a total of 44.8 kilobytes and with double, you just double at 89.6. So the Atari A10 was a 40-track drive with 18 sectors per track, but it was a single density, so only 128, which gave you a total of 92.16 kilobytes. As far as the Apple Disc 2, was a 35-track drive, and it came in 13 sectors per track or 16, depending on the DOS version. Pre-DOS 3.3 was a 13. But it was a double-density drive, so it gave you 256 bytes per sector, which was, was a total of... for pre-DOS 3.3 and 143.36 so the Atari te 10 was trailing a little behind the apple. Track 0 is the track closest to the outside edge and the highest number track is closest to the inside of the disc. The 35 track drive had a physical stop that wouldn't allow the head to go any further towards the center. This generally made a disconcerting sound to new users. The reason for the physical stop was because as the reading head got closer to the center, less magnetic material was available for the given bit of information. This would result in unreliable data reads. Of course, 40-track drives solve this issue by being able to read data at lower signal levels, which allowed the stop to be moved closer to the center. That is the only difference between 35 and 40-track drives. The next step was to add an additional index hole to the disk and a write-protect detector on the drive. Of course, I think the Ride Protect notch speaks for itself, but for those who aren't familiar with these old floppies, a notch was made in the disc at the factory. If the drive could detect this notch, it would write to the disc. If you want to write protect it, you just put a Ride Protect sticker or tape over the notch. Of course, if you want to write to both sides of the disc, you'd need a notch and an additional index hole on the other side of the floppy. They actually sold discs with Ride Protect notches on both sides, but for most of us, we just used a hole punch. These drives were called flippy drives and came in 40 and 80-track versions. The next improvement was to make the reading heads be able to handle higher frequencies, which is required for double-density format and allowed for 77 80-track drives to come into existence. Unfortunately, the 77-track drive was not able to read 35, 40, and 80-track format disks, and you also had to have a DOS to support it. Speaking of DOSes, the author ends the article discussing the TRS-80 DOS. Space Rescue by Matt Rudder a game for 16K Atari, Apple, or trs You've been selected as a member of the exploration team searching for life on a planet Arcturus 3. Radar indicates a meteor storm heading straight for your solar system. Can you, in a two-person rocket, rescue people stranded there without crashing into a meteor? You are their only hope. Gameplay comes in two stages. The first stage has you drop your rescue ship from the base ship that moves back and forth across the top of the screen. You must make your ship land on a platform placed at the bottom of the screen while avoiding stationary objects, also known as meteors. If you succeed, one of the people you need to rescue will celebrate your arrival and quickly board your ship. This starts stage two, getting back to your base ship. Immediately your thrusters will fire. You will either need to avoid the meteors on your way back or shoot the ones that get in your way. Since you only have one shot on the screen at a time, aim carefully. I found this game to be actually sort of fun. Sounds aren't great but they do add to the game experience and they aren't annoying. My only complaint is the game is in black and white and the Atari is capable of so much more. This game doesn't exist on Atari Mania, so I'll make sure to save you from typing it in by blasting it up there. Under the What's New section, RAMDISK, a review by Dean F.H. Macy. Axelon Incorporated has created a 128K RAMDISK for the 24K Atari. This slips into slot 3 and is added to their existing RAM, which gives you a total of 160K. This would have cost you around $450 back then. Based on the old inflation calculator, it's about $1,100 in 2015. By the way, I was listening to the Antic Podcast interview with home console pong creator Harold Lee. In their interview, he said he also created a first RAM disc for the Apple II, the 320 RAM disc, while working at Axlon. But I found an article in The Creative Atari, dated 1983, that said Axelon planned a RAM disc for the Apple II and Apple II Plus in the near future. So I'm guessing the Atari version came first. Also, the price of the Atari version in the magazines was much higher at six hundred ninety-nine dollars. Game review, Protector. Review by Alan J Zett, developed by Mike Potter and Synapsis Software. I knew about the original Protector, but I can't remember playing it, so for fun I went over to Atari Mania, picked up a copy, and ended up dying a lot. I think I need to use a real joystick instead of this Microsoft 360 controller. The game requires 32k and one joystick. The original came on cassette for twenty four ninety five or discs twenty seven fifty. In this game, you fly your Neo fighter around an unknown planet to save 18 citizens from certain death. This is a two-phase game. The first phase has you fly your ship over the city to pick up those people who beckon from atop the city buildings. You're tasked to pick them up and safely transport them to the new city. At the same time, an alien ship is doing the same thing, but instead of saving them, he's dropping them into the nearby volcano. In the second phase, after all the citizens have been registered in the city of New Hope, The barrier to Verdan Fortress will lower, allowing you to now transport those people to that location. At the same time, New Hope will slowly be consumed by the flowing lava. The game has six levels of difficulty and allows you to choose either three or five fighters. Alan admits this is a very challenging game and offers the suggestion of studying the landscape and the way the game reacts. This will give you a better idea how to play the game next time. He credits the program for using almost all Atari's hidden features and thinks this is a splendid display of machine code programming. He creates a well-done refined character set and well-laid-out display list. The game map itself stretches approximately 10 screens wide, and the movement of the ship as it travels across the screen is smooth. As far as the audio, considers, the sound effects and music are a product of high-quality programming. The magazine doesn't give game ratings, but after playing the game myself and completely reading this article, I'm thinking I would have probably given this a 4 out of 5 stars. Consider this review of SoftSide 41 Complete. If you'd like to hear more Atari game reviews, specifically cartridges, might I suggest you tune in to the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast that I host with Bill Kendrick and David Protestari. Now back to Rob. Thanks, Michael. And yes, I would definitely recommend you check out the XEGS Cart by Cart
0: podcast. I wonder what they're going to choose for their first game. Hmm, I'm curious. Hopefully we'll find out soon. Now let's get on to our game review here. This is actually a continuation. This is part 2B of the Flight Simulators with Chris Olson. Here we're going to discuss the helicopter sims vertical takeoff landing stuff, and my favorite flight simulator, F-15 Strike Eagle. This recorded all the way back on August 11th, uh, 2015, and I apologize for the delay in getting this out. There was a bunch of stuff going on, and, uh, you know, family stuff takes priority, so that's why it's late, but uh, I am happy that Chris took the time to talk with me way, way back then, and I am equally pleased to share it all with you. So yeah, so we'll jump into Helicopter Sims now, and... Uh Talk about Super Huey, which yes, I never played, <laughs> and it seems to be helicopters just much more complicated to fly than fixed-wing aircraft.
2: Yeah, yes, indeed. So this this is a, a great title. I will one hundred percent admit that uh, I came to this one through uh, um, the non-standard means, so <laughs> not going into a software place and buying it. And uh, my typical means of acquiring. Something. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed, but um, but this was one that uh, that was kind of a, a little bit of a detriment. It was uh, just kind of very very difficult without a manual. But as far as helicopters go, well, the, the aircraft control scheme, you know, which we've been kind of talking about, is um, you know very it translates very easily to a joystick. You know, you have a lot of you know whether it's fighter aircraft or in the case of like the Airbus, you have a lot of um, commercial and military aircraft just where you know you pull back on the stick and you know it you know makes the elevator go up and you go up and you know push forward elevator goes down you know left aileron, around right right or you know left pedal right pedal that all makes you know very easily translated other than the fact that um, you know your uh, your up and down axis might be you know different from it, which you would have in an arcade game but yeah. this this notion of uh, of, of kind of controls is it just makes perfect sense especially because you have an actual stick in like an airbus a320 or an f-16 or even back to the you know kind of early era fighters where it starts to get complicated though is in the notion of helicopters you have um basically it's it's a t- completely different set of controls you have uh, just very basic kind of helicopter 101 here you have something called cyclic which adjusts the pitch angle of the blades and this is um, more akin to your actual stick, just like we talked about. So, um, typically it looks just like, uh, you know, a stick would in, in a biplane or, you know, any type of, uh, you know, stick controlled aircraft where you're going to, you go up, you're going to go up, down, left and right. Uh, so that makes so that's the sense. That's right? like, sort
0: of sitting in front of you if, if you like, yes. see the old action movies where it's, they jump in a helicopter and they grab the one stick and they don't know anything about the collective. They grab that right. up front and that's...
2: Yep. Okay. You, you got it. So the one that kind of gets a little more complicated is called collective. And your collective basically changes the, you know, where the cyclic is going to change the pitch angle of blades. Um, the collective is going to change all the main rotor blades at the same time. So this is basically going to give you your climb and descent. Um, so, a combination of the two is going to kind of give you that uh, where you see um, i don 't know maybe it 's uh, kind of apropos for everything that 's going on in the u s these days if you see you know Donald Trump jump in his helicopter and it just <laughs> takes off and it does this kind of uh, helicopters do this kind of uh, where the actual body of the helicopter is pitched forward and it it looks like the you know this kind of odd angle where and it just kind of uh, leaps into the sky that 's you know a combination of uh, you know, of cyclic, you know, of cyclic up, and then, uh, you know, collective as well. Uh, so kind of a combination of these is what kind of gives helicopters their, um, you know, their, their uh, really interesting flight characteristics where you can have a hover or, you know, backwards or sideways flight. Uh, and then typically, you do have, um, you know, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, foot control to, uh, you know, for, I think they call it anti-torque, where you can get, uh, you know, a little bit in the airplane world where we'd get some actual go back and forth as well. So,
0: and that that controls like the the rear little rotor? Correct. Or?
2: Yes. And and this differs a little bit based on, uh, you know, certainly uh, one of the very kind of famous student helicopters it's called a Robinson R-22. And I think that the scheme's a little bit different there. Also, in um, in the same way that, uh, you know, kind of regular modern aircraft have seen uh, really push towards what they call fly-by-wire controls, yeah. where... Um, you basically, you make a controller input, it goes through a computer, and the computer kind of has limits to guard against. Well, um, you know, based on your speed and or oh, yeah. that, I'm not going to give you everything you commanded. I'm going to give you, you know, something adjusted for an appropriate speed so you don't end up overstressing the airplane or, you know, putting everybody, uh, making everybody weightless or going to some <laughs> IG maneuver. Uh, well, yeah, not what you wanted. Yeah, c- certainly not. So there's, there's, there's that. And helicopters have it where, um, you can actually, they, they have kind of combined elements of Cycling Collective where you might have it, where it's smart, where uh, it, they actually mix together. So you might take, uh, you know, most of the control can be combined in, into one kind of sick This is, I'm not a helicopter guy. This is all... Um, kind of based on stuff that I encountered with uh, you know students that I had who you know flew both fixed wing and helicopters and then being exposed to kind of various different things. so I, I'm hope I'm getting at least the basics of this right. I'm pretty sure I am. but in any case, getting getting back to controls, this is something that now presents uh, a much greater challenge. how could you know how could how could someone you know who wants to do a, a helicopters or helicopter game kind of take on this um, you know modeling the same sort of thing where you you, yeah you have your up down left and right but now you've got another element built in if you want to really achieve something that kind of leaves the arcade realm there's there's a challenge here yeah and super huey is quite possibly one of the most brilliant control schemes i've i've kind of ever encountered certainly in the eight built realm where it's a really elegant solution but one that certainly wouldn't be apparent to me sitting down to try to you know design something like this, and the answer is just hold down the uh, hold down the fire button and yeah, and treat it as kind of a separate axis. So um, you know pulling the uh, joystick port for inputs, you get your you know up down left and right, or you know maybe split the axes. So I think in Super case where actually uh, with with and I can't remember if the button's pressed or depressed, but you know. To the right and to the left actually gives you control over, um, you know, basically rotor speed. So um, you're able to do that. So it's it's definitely there's a learning curve there, but uh, you know, holding the fire button down gives you, um, you know, and making you know up down left and right movements gives you you know access to your your cyclic and your collective. So yeah, all on the same uh, stick. Yeah, that's really- All 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 on one stick. It's just it works so well. It's it's worth. If you're not a helicopter person, or if you are, you haven't encountered this game uh, or a simulation, it's it's worth just for the control scheme alone to see how well it works, and it really does. It's, it's and it also is um, you get the notion that you are doing something very complex, which is I imagine how helicopter pilots feel when they get in and take their first lesson. Um, <laughs> and it does uh, it does translate very very well. So hats off to the uh, you know Super Huey team for kind of figuring this out. And uh, makes a, a really because the thing is that there were games that that used joy, you know two joysticks, but it would be a, just in, in kind of the way manipulating you know left or right. It was probably doable, but um, this is actually a much more elegant solution. Something that translates to small joysticks in kind of the home computer realm much easier. Whereas in an arcade or with a, a stand-up kind of custom cabinet, yeah, sh- for sure you could you could see how. And in fact, I think that's that's what they have in, in some of the you know great helicopter sims from um, you know that or. You know, arcade games, you do have, you know, two sets of sticks or, or some sort of approximation of that. Yeah, as but, a home
0: game, you have to find some way to clamp the sticks onto a table or something. And...
2: That's right, yeah. And just, I, I'm thinking of myself, like, what I put them, like, you know, one on my, you know, kind of right knee, one on my <laughs> left, or one on a table. Yes, yeah, so there's just all sorts of issues there, especially with, uh, you know, something that has a cord and, you know, not, and trying to, to stay close enough. So, yeah, two sticks would have been, I guess, maybe if you had an 800 um Maybe the only thing I can think is you could, you know, with the obviously the uh, the top cover down, maybe you could stick plant both of them <laughs> on there and have some sort of like almost double fisted thing where that might work. But you know, then you you have to elevate the TV a little bit or the monitor, and yeah, it's just it really uh, this is a, a much better way to do it. So, um, so we've got uh, so the, so there's that, and the uh, it's also worth noting the manual. There's uh, a great kind of cheat sheet or quick reference guide. Uh, on Atari Mania, it is absolutely a necessity to do anything in this. I think for some crazy reason, I had no manual when I first encountered this game, and just by dumb luck, managed to happen to f- stumble on the you know three-letter keystroke of things to get some of the things going. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I always thought, especially as a kid too, that this was a, you know some sort of de facto copy protection. But uh, really kind of proceeding on from the uh discussion of the controls here um this is superheroes is, is is notable in many ways because you start with a uh a cold dark cockpit or you know cold dark flight deck
0: yeah and if, and, if, uh, if you hadn't pointed me out to the cheat sheet i'd still be sitting there in a cold dark oh my cockpit. gosh yeah
2: <laughs> it's just, just so there's there's this um there's this very stepwise kind of list of things that you have to do and uh, and part of this is based on the fact that uh, developers really wanted to, they wanted the ability to kind of teach you certain things or to kind of uh, make almost like a tutorial or as if you were a Huey student, you know, jumping into your first day. And a lot of that uses the onboard computer. But the steps that you have to go through to kind of get everything pointed the right way is is complex and potentially very frustrating. I would say give it a chance because, um, you know, kind of, manual entry or, you know, selection of a route is, is one of the more uh, kind of human intense things that I encounter in, in kind of my daily work. And it it has kind of the same pitfalls and same frustrations. But if you actually, you know, just print or have, a, you know, a tablet or something with these, uh, with the quick reference guide there, and you follow the steps, I found it's very, very rewarding to just get the computer loaded appropriately. And they they do a pretty darn good job of modeling a flight computer and uh, I think one of the really really nice touches is um, also potentially very frustrating so you go through and if I think if um, ins I think is what you type for instructional or int something like that that says all right I want to I want the student program loaded so it's gonna you know prompt you on what to do um, but so you get in everything's dark so you you, you, you turn some things on or you, you do like like two or three steps and then the computer shuts off it's supposed to shut off, which is, which is great. And then, you know, you go through and you, you, appropriately and it turns back on, but now it's loaded with, uh, you know, with the that instructional program, so it's just like it shuts off to kind of think about, you know, load everything in, and then once it's, you know, this is, gets the right signal, it turns back on. And this is very much like uh, I, I think of Apollo thirteen, where you know they they had to, you know, saving battery power, they had to turn everything off and hoping that it, you know, ported across to the uh, to the capsule. Or whatever, it's kind of a very similar uh, kind of notion here. Um, and, and, and to be honest, I don't know if this if this has any bearing on the actual Super Huey flight guidance system or anything like that. I would have to think it, it probably has a little bit in common with it, but um, just the the kind of amount of detail and depth in the handling of the computer, while frustrating with the different three-letter codes, it really does give that kind of extra bonus of, of, of being pretty realistic and um, really giving... Uh, you know, giving you a lot to work with. So I would say it's a somewhat difficult process to get the Huey started up, but because you've gone through this long thing and maybe stumbled or or done something out of order or had it uh, not work, it is very, very satisfying. In the same way that, uh, like, figuring, out a quest or you know some sort of you know figuring out a puzzle in in different games of different genres is is satisfying the um just get everything loaded and say oh i got the instructional program loaded great and then the same thing where if you follow the you know the manual how to get everything started up when you actually lift off it's it's great it is just just to fly around even if you ignore the instructional cues it's really worth uh worth checking out the cockpit is, is done pretty well the detail is a little bit spartan uh you get um is it, do you see cactuses? Is that right? Do you get yeah, a little? Uh, this like would, me, yeah. Which I thought was a nice touch. Uh, so you do get a little bit of terrain, and you can hover. Um, you know, the you you get a nice uh, kind of rotor blade sound, which uh, you know the kind of the whoop 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 from the uh, you know from the uh, the pokey chip there, and it's just this is this is a really 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 good simulation. Um, it's it actually it it has kind of um, you know a lot more. There is a lot more available that I never even scratched. Surf, sort of, partially because I didn't have the manual growing up. But this is one that, if I was kind of hacking around just looking for a game to play, I would, I would load this one and just try to remember. Oh, you know, mashing on keys or whatever. I managed <laughs> to get, you know, maybe one thing loaded to the computer. But uh, just the the control scheme and, and being able to you know control your rotor speed and, and it's just it's very very well done. Um, you know, frame rate is good. Um, it just it's it, you really kind of buy that you're controlling a helicopter so um the original game was written by a guy named paul norman this company is called cosme they uh are not uh, a studio that uh, that i had really even heard of or um you know kind of familiar with any of their other work but it was ported to the atari by a gentleman named robert bonifacio i actually um I followed the kind of down the rabbit hole of a, you know a link or something like that. And I think he lives in Hawaii and is still doing software development, maybe in the iOS realm, but um, man, I would uh, love to say, hey, you know, you know encountered your game in in eighty six and talked about it again. It was just really, really well done. Had to be kind of you know, again, late in the Atari eight bit days as far as that goes, and just uh, a really, really, really well done. Uh, I think people would probably it, it was had a couple of different names. I think this is much more popular for the C sixty four, but um, there's you know Super Huey, and then there's like Super Huey two, uh, which would see I think the C sixty four and maybe you know MS DOS and so on and so forth. So this kind of launched a little bit of a mini franchise that, uh, but my familiarity kind of stops with the uh, the Atari eight bit version, but um, but very very good, certainly complicated, uh, almost to the point of being a little bit off putting to the kind of the casual user, but it put the time in and it just, uh, it really, it, it kind of appeals to a completely different sense of just wanting to get in and go fly this uh, notion of checklists and uh, making sure you do things in the correct order. This is why I say, you know, my, my wife says I'm a, a pretty decent baker, but a really really lousy cook because I do not have that innate sense of oh this needs more salt or this needs more pepper. But <laughs> a list of very specific instructions, you know, pour this much in, do that, uh, that I can do. So um, so this kind of satisfies that same kind of element for you know if you follow the uh, you know the uh, startup instructions, you know, kind of to the letter. You're definitely rewarded with a with kind of a complicated, robust sim. So I don't know. Yeah. Did you have kind of a similar take on it? Or? Yeah,
0: it, almost, it it appears to me is almost like a, a training simulator. You know, it's yeah. so detailed, and you know, there's you know, there's these three letter commands you've got to type in to do all the, the 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 computer commands for the helicopter, and you know, so not only do you have to worry about controlling it, you know, the direction of the, right. the two sticks, the collective, <laughs> cyclic, but then you've got yep. to do the computer commands, and so yeah, it feels like this were you know the eight-bit equivalent of some, uh, you know, actual simulator that somebody would use to learn sure. this thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how accurate it really is, but that's kind of what. it, To somebody who doesn't know anything about helicopters, it just seems like this is so much further beyond a regular just a flying sure. simulator. It's like a, you know, it's a, it's a process simulator.
2: No, that that that's in fact that's a that's a very very good way to put it. In the uh, airline realm, we'd call it like a procedural trainer. Oh so, right, yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's definitely true.
0: Yeah. So Super Huey, it's you know it's it seems pretty fast. It was, you know, pretty responsive. And I, I looked at it and it's all graphics mode, anti-mode four. It's all text mode. No kidding. Yeah. Which is really, it's, you know, cause they, you can, you can roll the helicopter. I don't know if that's what, do they still call it roll in the helicopter? Yeah, yeah. sure.
2: Well, we, we certainly can. That's what. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> so, you know, you, know, you can, I don't know, probably in real helicopters, there's also a limit. You can't roll too far. Otherwise it just,
2: you know, sure. Oh, definitely.
0: No wings, so you can't really right. keep gliding. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I don't know if that was a consideration, but they must have enough redefined character sets to be able to draw all these little angles for the, um, you know, the ground as it as it changes from horizontal to whatever the limit is. But so you know, it's a lot fewer bites to to worry about moving around.
2: Indeed. So. Boy, that that is really really impressive. Um, I think I I might have mentioned this on. Uh, when we talked about civilian sims, or maybe it was when talking to the Antic folks, but um, I know I, I made kind of brief reference to it with talking about uh, Dead Stick and Soft Side mm-hmm. and custom character set. But um, one of the the Dr. Wacko books,
0: yeah, is, yeah.
2: Uh, uh, that's kind of one of the things they stress is that, you know, text mode is, uh, you know, don't, don't just count it out. Just think, you know, Infocom, text adventures, whatever. Um, they really stress in in the book that I was most familiar that had this amazingly long type in game at the end this uh, um, (laughs) something it wasn't Yertle the Turtle but it was something like that and there was some sort of dim string or something where there was there was I'm sure there was errata for the book but I had no idea it was you know where it probably got fixed or maybe I typed it wrong or it was just you know pages and pages and pages and I could never quite get it and I could never find it at BBS or anything so one of these days and I'm sure it's so much less now, but one of these days I'll type it in. But it was this great, kind of grand, awesome kind of thing, and the crux of why it was able to run so fast and run so well was because they stayed in, like, Graphic Zero or, you know, kind of a text mode. So um, this, uh, knowing that I am just blown away by how you would absolutely never know it did you i mean i would no, have I, never guessed that it was i didn't uh, realize
0: it at all either until and once once i looked at the display list to figure out what they're doing i went back and looked at it and i said okay now i see what they're doing and i see that there's sort of if you look i don't know if i should spoil it for everybody but <laughs> if you look at the um uh you know you can see kind of the cockpit and so there's there's two little um i don't know what you call them they're just like metal things that would separate the glass panels mm-hmm. in the cockpit so you can see them sort of out your front view and if you look closely there though the little borders because they're they're drawing little angles and so the, the antic mode four is it's essentially it's same size as, as graphics zero in basic but it's the four color or actually five color mode oh sure okay um but so when they draw these little angles that go up there's a few pixels that aren't part of the metal and so they yeah, should be outside. That's right. But when you look at that that those don't actually change color when they when you get to change the sky to the ground once I you know figured out that it was anti mode 4, I could see that, but before you don't you just don't even notice it you know it's just, sure everything's moving so fast and uh, yeah, so it was uh mm-hmm. you know all these all these sort of trade-offs they had to do to make the game playable well do we go for the high res graphics but then it'll, the frame rate will be slow slowed down sure or sure. We're, you know we can make it play really fast and have the frame rate be the driver, but you know we have these little artifacts that we just can't get around so you know trade-offs you don't really have to make today but back then it was a, a big design consideration
2: and uh it, it's it's really i think it translates quite well because and maybe this is one of the reasons that the um the flight computer or what, what i would call like a you know uh, fmc like flight management computer is such a big component maybe that even took kind of more center stage knowing mm-hmm. that they were in this text mode where um And I I had kind of my suspicions that there was, you know, this might have been some sort of hybrid graphics mode because you do have kind of that that text input. They do a really good job at disguising it. Um, And in fact, uh, you know, the artifacting that you mentioned, I think I might have just written off as a kid as, oh, you know, it's um, the the Huey just kind of knowing just a little bit about it. It was, you know, this kind of uh, just, you know, really kind of... uh, well-traveled machine that, you know, it's in Vietnam and, and all these sorts of things. So this kind of issue of being, is showing a little bit of wear and tear. I, I don't think I would ever expect to jump into a brand new Huey. It would have to be uh, um, it's the same sort of thing. I think you see it in uh, that movie, you know, Bat 21 where yeah. Danny Glover uh, steals the helicopter to, uh, um, you know, to try to, you know, go get uh, Gene Hackman. And this whole thing of where, you know, it's, it's a, it just, I'm sure they were brand new and shiny at one point, but, you know, it kind of—it's all this couch and camouflage and all the rest of this. So I might have just completely written that off as, oh, that's—and that is a—I mean, in the in the airplane world, yeah, the glare shield or the headliner. I mean, that you know, it, it sits in the sun, it fades, and so uh, what a what a great thing text, uh, you know, to uh, to kind of the uh, little trickery of uh, having the the pipe symbol or whatever it is that yeah. uh, kind of fades off into the etheric and doesn't change or reference the others as, uh, but. Uh, but wow, so that that is that is really impressive. And I did actually think of that, boy, for having all this text in there, like did they actually, you know, did you did you have to when you drew the flight management computer, did you have to somehow graphically represent this text? I thought, like, God, what a what kind of a terrible thing. But I thought, well, it had to be some sort of combination. So that is yes. really amazing. The cactus too, I mean they're the cacti. Um I guess now that I think about it, I I can maybe picture that same, you know, cacti or cactus, you know, on like a, you know, a tasky logging onto a BBS yeah, somewhere. Yeah. But uh, because it's against the green, uh, you really, it's like I said, certainly fooled me all these years. So yeah, what, uh, of, yeah
0: it's what moving it, fast it, too. So this, there's a lot of a lot of tricks you can do when stuff is is moving quickly.
2: Indeed, so. indeed. But uh, that's I think that's pretty much all I have on Hero. Just really, really well done. Uh, control scheme. Uh, for God's sake, the fast frame rate with uh, you know in text mode. That's uh, that's really quite something. Hats off to the program.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and contrast that to the other flight, the other helicopter sim that we're going to look at, the Tomahawk. Yes, that does actually. It uses two separate sticks to control.
2: Yeah. So this is um, th- this is kind of the um, the scenario that we we chatted about earlier. So Tomahawk. This is DataSoft again, 1987. Uh, so the very tail end of the kind of development cycle for the Atari 8-bit, and I think you actually have two options in this one. So we we had a you know pretty pretty good discussion of cyclic and collective and what controls which. I think you can do two joysticks, or you can actually do a joystick and a keyboard. I think um,
0: oh yeah, that's true. Kind of, it does have the keyboard command. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> so if you are unfortunate enough to not have uh, either a free joystick port or two joysticks or a working one, um, and and it and this scheme really makes sense where. Uh, it's yeah, not ideal having to mash the keyboard. Basically, it's like up and down. I think it's A and Q. So one is up, one is down, and then that combined with the uh, joystick can put kind of on your way. This is a this is a this is a really good game. It's actually very polished, and uh, it might be the best-looking simulator of all the ones that we've talked about in my opinion it actually i mean you could just even just looking at it on your on your tv or your crt monitor in your emulator you could this this is a passable st game where you could go you know what this this kind of looks much more like the much prettier higher res um kind of uh um you know just kind of feeling that uh you know atari st games where it was it still wasn't you know millions of colors and but it was definitely an upgrade whether it was you know up to sixteen colors, or just you know, things looked a little bit more lifelike. So, um, th- it's this not is,
0: this awkward. is all this is all antic mode E. So it's Graphic Seven Plus. So they they must have done some serious optimization to make it run as fast as it does.
2: Indeed. Um, so this is um, this is again this is a basically kind of a taking a page from you know simulating like an Apache helicopter kind of or that type of helicopter. It's kind of similar to Super Huey in. But it, instrumentation is, is kind of pared down a little bit. You do yeah. have um, maybe a nod towards something approaching more real life where you actually have like a vertical speed indicator, which is, uh, which is quite important if, you know, kind of coming into land. But you don't have the kind of large breadth of the kind of flight management computer kind of system that's modeled in, in Super Huey. But, gosh, you do have night vision um, where you can, you know, it's dark and you get the kind of the green effect for that. So there's really, really a lot here. But at, at the base of it, the, or kind of the basis of the game is shoot stuff on the ground, shoot down a lot of helicopters. That's really, um, it doesn't go too much further than that. Now You do have kind of changing terrain and uh, there, there's a, you know, but it doesn't have the same kind of uh, maybe mission-oriented sense that you even get from something like Helicad Ace. So it's not quite as cohesive from that standpoint, but I will say it is completely made up for by how Um, how well this is done the cockpit just looks very very good uh just that you can switch between you know guns and a couple different kinds of missiles and that's just very very well done the actual uh, crosshairs or the pipper changes based on that's how you know what you've got okay that's the gun sight. that's the uh you know that's the one for the mavericks and you know this is the the one for rockets or whatnot um it, uh, this this game also too is one of the ones that's kind of surprising that it was uh, ported to the or released for the uh, for the Atari 8-bit system. Uh, I encountered this game uh, for the Apple 2GS, which is, you know, 1987. I don't know if it was released at the, exactly the same time. And when we chatted about doing this podcast way back when, uh, I almost, I thought, oh, that's got to be a different game. There's no way that the, you know, Tomahawk from the 2GS days was <laughs> even present. I said, how could that how could that be? And by golly, it's the same one. And uh, the 2GS version is, is very, very good. I think it's one of the, uh, you know, a very, very great title of a 2GS on a sonic 2GS podcast. But you know, so really though, the only differences um, that I can see and remember is you get a nice, uh, you know, the 2GS had that 15 voice and sonic uh, sound chip that was, uh, you know, could produce really before the era of Sound Blaster and everything else, produce this really, really great sound. So you get a really kind of uh, um, awesome digitized kind of score that comes in. And then the, really the, everything else is very, very similar. I, I actually even think the 2GS, um, you get kind of the wireframe sense where it's very, very fluid, but the uh, graphics that you see in the Atari 8-bit are actually just, and maybe it's the small screen or the, you know, the, the shot of the the cockpit. It's it's very, very similar. So, Um, there's not a lot of detail in the terrain or, you know, you get trees that are, you know, just a little bit in, in both platforms, but, um, it's, it's just, it must be, like you said, optimized to the hilt. And, um, this would be a good one if you wanted to kind of do a side-by-side, you know, boot up your Altera and boot up whatever the, uh, flavor of the month, uh, 2GS. I think there's some great 2GS emulators and just take a look at both of them. If nothing else to, especially in 1987, it's worth it just for the, I don't know how, how well sound crunches in an emulator, but it is, it is a pretty neat opening score that obviously we don't get in the 8-bit version. But um, the dual joysticks, so if you actually you know um, opt against the keyboard, the A and Q for collective, the two sticks works very well. Um, I found that it was very, very easy to over-control, which I know is a, a huge problem with actual helicopter students and some of the folks that, I, that crossed over into the fixed-wing realm. Um, but it it is fluid, and in the same way that Superhero gives you that real sense of, you know, I'm flying a helicopter, I can hover, I can do this. It's even more apparent, and it just it's just a really really slick interface, uh, very pared down instrument panel, but very professional and very sleek. Um, I think that's that's. I don't have a whole bunch more to say about this one. It's it's great action. It's great fun to to shoot other helicopters down and. You know, go against, but it's it's maybe a little bit lacking. It it could use uh, whether it's story or a nod towards this is this is one you could very easily take and expand upon, or that could have been you know really kind of knocked out of the park. I have I have the sense though that every bit and you know whatever was accounted for that uh, you know unless they targeted the XL or some other kind of platform with more memory that there just wasn't any more space. But a very very good accomplishment, and uh, I would say too. Easier to at least get started than Super Huey. So if you really want to try a helicopter sim that uh, that does it well, this one is definitely a little prettier and uh, doesn't quite have that kind of checklist barrier of entry that yeah. that Super Huey does. Yeah, so true. kind of a, a good compromise, I would yeah, say. Yeah,
0: like like single letter commands rather than the three three letter commands for SuperHuey. And right, still did it. Still took me a while to get off the ground, and until I realized that using the Atari 800 emulator, the cyclic was actually joystick number two.
2: Oh, sure
0: and so i was like i could, i can only go up and down I was like i can't move right <laughs> so.
2: yeah. and and i've got you know, traveling i've got a gamepad, and uh you know it's got a d-pad and two sticks but trying to find the right mode and uh you know and kind of get it to where it did take some you know some configuring but uh, uh but that's actually that's maybe worth mentioning if you don't uh, I mean, certainly it would be it would be worth it to haul out the old CX40s and have two of yeah. them, but um, a good kind of interim if you actually, um, you know, do Atari gaming on your laptop or even just on your regular PC, um, like an Xbox controller or some sort of, um, you know, more console-type controller might give you the best of both worlds, where then, um, you know, the two sticks together are much more manageable. Right. So, yeah. And that's mm-hmm. actually when I booted this back up and, was just kind of awestruck by this being the same game that uh, get <laughs> the two GS. I, I did the the uh, the dual whether it was D pad and stick or two analog sticks that worked quite well. I, it's really good. The last thing I'll say about it is um, that that sense of I remember the the first time I, I booted a simulator loaded it up and the inst the cockpit was kind of digitized and I remember uh, maybe a ten tank killer which was a dynamics title from like eighty nine where. You know, they actually took a photo, and you know, a very made it very, very low res. But um, you get the sense that this was what an A-10 cockpit looked like. And this is kind of the closest that uh, of the titles I'm aware of and and played that uh, that maybe it comes in the in the 800 days where um, you you do get you know it's like I said it's it's a third of the screen or half the screen, but um, that kind of notion towards this actually looks you know very much like something something real and something that's polished as opposed to, you know, something like super Huey or solo flight or even flight Simulator 2, where it's kind of a, a, kind of gross approximation, or it's obvious that, you know, yeah, you get an attitude indicator, but you know, we had to make it all one color because of X, Y, Z, because we only have two colors to work with or yeah. some sort of uh, other kind of odd, uh, odd deals. So yeah, very, very well done. And I'm sure it pushed the, Machine to the hilt and, and what it could do, but it has got a pretty good frame rate, and uh, I think helped by the fact that most of the time you, you encounter another target, it's very very far away, so it's or it's very very small, <laughs> but then you get kind of a small explosion. But uh, even so, it's it's still uh, still quite good. So especially if you're not being a helicopter guy, these two are, are very 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 well done. But that's uh, that's all I have yeah. on, on Tomahawk. I think.
0: I guess this is not exactly a helicopter, but did you want to talk about Jump Jet?
2: oh yeah you know i don't want to spend a, a whole lot of time on this one um this is uh i never I got s- it i
0: never i am <laughs> my plane is still sitting on that carrier just like beeping i could never get it to do anything so
2: yeah so so th- this one this one is um again i think this is 85 and uh, it's kind of known by it's it's weird it pops up in databases and and online different names So jump jet and then uh, it, it appears sometimes as harrier mission so if you're looking for it or looking for info, one of, that might be able to steer you the right way, but the uh, the plane that's modeled is the uh, uh, we know it in the U.S. as the uh, is the AV eight B Harrier. The actually the A model uh, came out first, in a lot of uh, lot a lot of training accidents. So the A didn't didn't really last too long. It was quickly replaced by the B. The oh. A was, hmm. uh, actually had uh, really. If uh, you're familiar with the tilt rotor. The Osprey? The Osprey, all the issues they had where it works really well now, but they had very, basically the Harrier program had, you know, all that and then some, you know, 25, 30 huh. years
0: Really? However
2: long it was. But uh, this is present in many forms. The Royal Air Force has them, um, and they actually they have them on carriers and um, in the U.S., the Marines. Um, but this uh, notion of uh, an airplane being able to uh, vertically take off and land just like a helicopter um so basically what's done is the the exhaust nozzles are directed downward and then there's this uh progression just like the kind of tilt rotor Osprey where at some point you go from hover to kind of forward and uh that transition is done well it, this is uh notoriously difficult to do to pull off from both an engineering and a piloting standpoint yeah. <laughs> so um this is it, it have there have been quite a few accidents and i will say if you see a harrier at an air show it is by far the loudest airplane you will see. Uh earplugs for the kids. I mean it is just it's impressive, but when it's in hover, you can just figure all that thrust being vectored down would where it normally would or down where it would normally be blasting off the uh, you know, the side of the plane or, you know, out the back. Uh it is just you uh, ear piercingly loud. And uh yeah, so definitely watch out for that. You can hear certainly hear a harrier coming if it's taking off next, <laughs> in in a hover sense. It can do. It does just find landing in, in a conventional means as well. But um, so very ambitious project uh, to model all this, uh, is, especially you know given the uh, the 8 bit realm pretty difficult. Um, I'll mention it because the person who's uh, who's kind of credited with uh, being the programmer is a harrier pilot. His name is Vaughn Dow, and sure was a labor love for him. Uh, I was able to get moving, but it's a top-down simulator view, so you actually see your airplane and kind of the deck. So it almost, uh, it kind of, yeah, I hate to say it, but I, I kind of, it almost gave me that river raid sense where yeah. hey, you got the, you know, kind of top-down and you're on the river and that sort of kind of notion. But um, I would say Jump Jet runs into the same problem that, uh, Jumbo Jet pilot and the 747 landing simulator kind of run into where they try to pack a whole lot of information into a kind of non-standard kind of instrument quadrant on the you know on the bottom of the screen. It's just it's 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 difficult to pick out the information that you need to, to get kind of flying. And then given the the top-down view, it's just uh, it's it's kind of tough. So um, and this this one might be one to maybe want to spend a little bit more time with and really kind of you know, sit, take some time to try to really learn the ins and outs. But it's uh, it's got a pretty steep learning curve. And given the, you know, it, 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 the graphics are okay, decent, but um, put this next to Ace of Aces or um, F-15 Strike Eagle or some of the others, and it's just kind of no comparison. So a very ambitious project, uh, very, very difficult to model. I will say, um, I think there was the first time we saw a Harrier Simulation in like the MS DOS and kind of Windows era was was many many years later, and even then it was uh, just the, just getting the mechanic of the the nozzles kind of going from hover to flying was a huge kind of you know difficult thing with without actual hardware or, or anything like that. So yeah, so you know I, I I would certainly if you're a Harrier guy or or gal maybe give it a look, but um, ambitious project is probably. Uh, you know maybe if it had been one of these 86 or 87 games it would have had uh, you know an instrument panel that looked a little bit more you know that was it made it a little bit easier to use but steep learning curve and i was uh, not able to get too far and this was not one that i encountered uh, growing up i think i heard of it but i didn't uh, i didn't see it so. no yeah i've never heard of it
0: i never heard of it at all so not one i pirated
2: <laughs> there you go
0: and well, then I guess we'll
2: save the best for last. My yes. favorite flight
0: simulator, F 15 Strike Eagle. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I, yeah, I just, uh, I could probably do a whole podcast on this one, but I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one and I'll, I'll jump in with, uh, with my take. But this is, this is one of my all time favorite games just, you know, across any platform. So,
0: yeah. No, might as well. I remember when this is one of the few games we actually bought and it was, um, you know, it came with a thick manual, and the copy protection was—I think—was a manual-based. Did you have to flip to a certain page? I don't remember. Or the yeah. code, code wheel or something. I yep. forget what it was.
2: That's right. I actually—I had to look at it because uh, the uh, the version that I that I used um, from from somewhere actually you needed needed it. So they had uh, little cipher codes where it was uh, based on. Uh, it was one manual for you know same pack-in manual for Apple, Atari, Commodore sixty-four, and it would actually differentiate by your computer so if it was like it'd give you like uh and it was scattered throughout the manual you might have uh you know it would say authenticate one and you'd be like all right what does that say so like for atari you know one translates to the letter d okay punch that in so it was uh kind of that so it kind of gave you that uh almost like secret code war Mm games-esque uh Kind of thing where you thought, oh, this is you know, this is kind of military uh, or almost like a, a secret thing.
0: So. Yeah, and all the you know, all, all the copies are cracked now that you find on Atari Mania or whatever, and so it doesn't really matter what you type in. But I forget if if you typed in the wrong code, it wouldn't fail. It just you couldn't use the missiles or something, or yeah, that's, you, yeah. You know, it, it was. Yeah,
2: yeah, I want to say something like that. I, I my notion is you couldn't like navigate to anything, or it would kind of put you in like a free flight. But if you wanted to actually try to do the mission it would somehow cripple it so it was interesting kind of a very interesting choice that would just boot you back to the you know but uh uh so yes i you really wonder what because i mean it was a a pretty simple i mean it would you know call your friend who has the game and you could have very easily like this is what i did from the pdf but you know just wrote it down it wasn't uh you know but uh just kind of an interesting choice uh as far as that goes but uh but yeah that you would actually get to play uh you know, a, a not quite complete version or something. Yeah, kind Maybe of entice
0: you to buy the whole thing, and, you know? and
2: that's what I'm thinking. Like, you know, the the kind of r- notion of rage quitting, where it just sends you back to the, <laughs> you know, or or locks up or something. It would make somebody mad to where, you know, then they're going to say, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the hex editor out, or I'm gonna crack this kind of thing. But yeah, I, I guess that uh, you know, clearly a lot of thought was put into that. Where yeah, you know, let's let them see the game, but if they want to, you know, actually. Then maybe they'll go out and buy it. So it's probably it probably worked. It probably uh, probably sold a lot more copies that way. I would imagine.
0: Yeah, and I I just remember how how smoothly it played. You know, it was it was complicated. Much you know, it had didn't have terrain as such. You know, it had the you're you're flying looking out the cockpit and you see these sort of little grid lines that suggest the the movement. Yeah. Um, but it was you know the frame rate was pretty fast and the uh, the enemy enemy fighters that came in were you know they flew pretty complicated patterns and you know, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't just sitting ducks. Sure. You know, the targets on the ground were the uh, airfields you had to bomb or whatever and uh, you know, that you had to navigate to different targets and still make it back with a, with your a fuel left. You know, there's a right. lot of planning that went involved. You had to yeah. you had to choose your weapons, you know. Uh, um, yeah, just uh, my dad and I played this incessantly for probably until we got the ST. It was probably one of the last games we ever really got on the um, 8-bit and you know, I played it for a good probably year or so
2: absolutely well i think uh, this is one that we purchased as well and yeah this one in solo flight actually had uh, original original copies and uh, so i went back and looked at the at the manual and one of the things i've been kind of hinting at where kind of notion of like a campaign mode or something mm-hmm. would be very very common in simulators today and this has a really kind of reasoned um, kind of you know semi realistic semi kind of uh, you know basis for um, you know, putting you in, in locations that you're aware of. And uh, something that is always very interesting to me is at the time the game was released, so for the Atari, I think this was, well, geez, was it was it 85? Is that right? 84. 84, okay. Um, so if you, you know, the last, about, you know, 10 pages of the manual or last few pages or so, um, it kind of gives this description of, um, actually, so I take it back. So uh game was, 84 the manual that i found was kind of a, a like a revised like a change you know change date to where it was actually 86 where it was like reboxed or repackaged they kind of tacked an addendum on. and it talked about the you know us action against libya where mm, it, this was yeah. one of the uh, you know i kind of remember just kind of be hearing about that a little bit where um, there was this uh, kind of uh, large scale action where um, you know you know the planes were shot down, uh, certain targets in, in Libya were were eliminated, and this was kind of a kind of a two or three prong approach to where you know there was something going on 500 miles away here, and uh, so this kind of uh, you know military campaign it was one of the kind of it's it's what people kind of pointed to in the in the kind of modern. Era as you know, all right. The U.S. is you know has achieved some sort of air superiority. When you hear people talk about the F-15 within kind of history, or one of the buzzards come up, that comes up is, you know this is an an air superiority fighter. Well, what does that mean? Yeah, well, it, it's kind of a dual mission. Yeah, it can it can dogfight. It can get in there and you it can also you know deploy kind of a um, you know bombs or you know kind of go after. And that was really kind of rare to to be a, a true fighter bomber. Was uh, something that you know maybe other aircraft kind of. Point to in kind of the Vietnam era, but this was the F-15 was really did a, a very, very good job of that. So uh, you can see why it'd be a, a good candidate for a simulation. But uh, when I you talked about kind of the cohesive nature of you know, of Super Huey and kind of that instructional sense of being, you know, kind of led, you know, from one task all the way through to the end of the task of uh, following the checklist and getting everything set up. Um, there was a, a real sense of the mission structure in F-15 Striker that really gave you that. And, uh, you know, to, to go through and the missions would get more difficult, more difficult. But, you know, to kind of get all the way through to the end, you could very easily see kind of the evolution of this, where you had to be a pretty accomplished player to you know, finish that, uh, that sixth or seventh mission. I want to say, though, and I remember, I think you're going to Saudi Arabia and you've got to, you know, you've got to, you know, bomb certain targets and you've got to, you know, fend off all these airplanes. And, yeah. um, you know, you get to the point where you get kind of so deep in that you're like, I, I don't know if I'm going to have enough fuel to get out. So all the things mentioned with the earlier MicroProse games, the, you know, Hellcat Ace, Spitfire Ace, Migeli Ace, it's um, certainly the engine's been upgraded. I will say the frame rate is still very good. It's not quite as fluid right, as yeah. it is on those, but there's so much more information being pushed and, you know, a, a much bigger level of complexity. Um, so the, f- the fact this is 84, so this would have been before the movie Top Gun came out, but this notion of locking on to a target and getting, getting missile lock is such a really, really neat thing, even in the kind of pixelated notion, the 8-bit. That is one of the most satisfying things about this, <laughs> to, to get behind somebody to launch a missile and just blow them out of the sky is, is really, really quite satisfying. The way that it's modeled, it, it seems very realistic with a heads-up display and uh, just the way you know, you're able to, you said, kind of load out different weapons and, and switch between them. And There, actually, um, there are actually quite a few keyboard commands here that um, without the manual or without some sort of quick reference card, you'd be kind of in big trouble um it does you do have the ability to use like a navigation computer and to point you towards the target but boy if you don't do that um it's pretty tough especially with these later missions where you have multiple objectives and you have to fly from you know one place to another yeah i've i've told this story on i think it was anatoly's podcast i'll just very briefly mention it um i played this with my dad all the time too and it would be um, kind of a neat thing where, you know, kind of someone's acting like a, a backseat rider. Right? Oh, hey, you know, watch out, you got <laughs> traffic coming or, um, you know, hey, watch your fuel. Or just, you know, maybe somebody else to, uh, you know, to kind of to look over your shoulder. But um, there was uh, one, one of the very later missions where it was just a, a real um, calm, almost exercise in resource managing. You know, Do I use the afterburners to get away from these airplanes? Can I, you know, save it and, you know, just, you know, really – Scoot for the last few or when I do, and I, I remember i I took on some damage and uh but I had accomplished the objective. I just had to get back to the airfield. And I think that was you know you get within what is it you didn't actually get to land, which was a little bit disappointing, but I think you got to like three thousand feet above the field and it would uh pretty much take it from there is that am I remembering that right yeah,
0: I don't remember landing either, but it was okay it was something like that yeah you,
2: you know got you get the vicinity and... yeah you you get in the uh, the sphere of the uh maybe the airspace, i guess you could say of the uh of the, uh, you know, the, the friendly airfield and and it kind of, you know, the, the landing is assumed kind of thing. But um, so, you know, a little bit damaged. I maybe I was, you know, close to auto weapons or very low. And you know, thinking, you know, how I don't, you know, I spent too much time trying to afterburn away. How am I going to I'm not going to make it back. And I remember uh, my dad saying, well, you know what, climb up as high as you can. You know, you'll you'll be more fuel efficient up there. And, you know, at the you know, worst case, you'd up, you know, to the service ceiling of the plane. You can just kind of glide, you know, glide yeah. down and maybe get it. And especially with F-15 Strike Eagle where, you know, a dead stick landing in, a, in an F-15 would be would be pretty pretty bad news. But in the notion of the game world, <laughs> just get within 3,000 feet and, you know, five miles away and you were fine. So, um, so, but it was just this notion of just going up there and cruising. And it worked, you know, you were all the way up to, you know, forty thousand feet and just you know the which it just sipped the the gas relative to burning so much down low so that made a very lasting impression in the same way that the realistic modeling of you know the vr navigation the other elements of solo flight it really clicked in and stuck with me even though i didn't go on to fly in kind of a military track um this you know at that point i knew that the people who designed this game the one who was a fighter pilot um you know put enough into where um you know they, they the flight model used was such that it would uh you would be smart enough to kind of figure that out and uh that's stuck with me even you know kind of through to this day where you know what a what a really what what a well-designed simulator where the you know the attention to detail was such that that was actually achievable and um i cannot say enough good things about this game it's it's intense that the action is uh makes you feel like you're really there even in through the kind of the prism of you know modern day sims um this one it's just complicated enough where uh you do feel like a uh, kind of master of your domain with managing you know weapons and the different keystrokes and the different navigation points but also easy enough to just fly around and get familiar that mm-hmm. uh you don't feel kind of put off so it's that again that that microprose notion of being somewhat instructional but um maybe not quite to the process or procedural nature of something like super Huey, but that good in between where there's, it's recognized that there's uh, certainly an arcade element here. There's an element of action that is that they probably felt like they didn't really have to trade off. Um, I like coming in for the bombing runs when the, the, you know, you see the, the reticle or the, or the Pipper, it's just, it's so well done. And, um, you know, I, I think it probably of, of, you know, up until maybe much later on different platforms. I don't know that there's another, certainly an 8-bit sim, that, that pulls off bombing like this one does. So that's yeah, yeah. Getting... yeah, the way
0: it draws the, the bomb yeah. site perpendicular to the ground, but so when yes. you're on, at an angle, it still tracks that angle. And so, Yes, yeah,
2: a... A- absolutely. Yeah, just um,
0: the, um, you know, it's the way they, the, the thought they put into the design of the, you know, the heads-up display and the way they present all the information on the screen, you know, the top half being your view, and then the bottom half, they don't present a traditional set of instruments but they present you know your map and your radar and your your um, weapons selection you know they they put a lot of thought into it so so that you could you could really see what you needed to see but it wasn't cluttered by you know extraneous stuff and uh, you know just having you know speed altitude um, stuff like that just displayed as text rather than worrying about you know, actually, right. instrument display. I mean, they, they chose what they needed that you could tell what was going on at at an instant, rather than having to you know fig- figure your way through all this cluttered instrument panel.
2: Definitely, um, no that that's that's a very good point. So, well, they and they with a nod towards realism, because these heads up displays are, um, you know, famously you, you certainly see them in Top Gun, and uh, you know, as things kind of evolve, that's that's what you've got, and that they have it in cars now too, where. Yeah. You might have it projected you might have the, the the really important stuff but you can kind of see through your windshield. you get like you know miles per hour or kilometers per hour and uh maybe fuel and maybe you can customize it you know maybe you can put uh you know put uh, you know, some sort of enhanced vision or you know see through the fog or, or whatnot so all these things that uh are, have kind of made their way into the civilian world in, in different vehicles so but so the heads-up display is there but in, in truth, it's not it, a real heads up display would give you the you know the airspeed represented as a number or a mock number or some sort of angle of attack thing or you know altitude we typically what we call a tape where mm, you'd get yeah. that on the actual heads up display, but an f15 strike eagle, they said, well, you know that's going to be really hard to see against the sky against everything else. so so you, you're absolutely right. so it was a little bit of a compromise but right, yeah. with a nod towards we're going to give you what it looks like, but we can't. Model, you know, exactly what it looks like is, you know, for various different reasons. But um, I feel like it's been kind of a common theme where uh, other simulators have tried to kind of uh, hit upon a good combination of airplane instrumentation that they full well know is not the standard six pack of what we're accustomed to. And, you know, probably weren't, didn't quite accomplish that or it didn't translate to good gameplay or. Um, you know kind of ease of use well f-15 strike eagle figured it out because yeah you look at that cockpit the the way the web the way everything is laid out it makes a lot of sense and certainly there are some similarities to um this uh, typically uh, you, uh, a two-seat fighter where you've got like a, a radar intercept offer or uh, uh, officer and you know the pilot who's actually doing it, just like you have an in Top Gun where you've got, you know, Ma- Maverick and Goose, yeah. you know, one guy's watching the radar and watch for stuff. The other guy's, you know, flying the airplane. Um, so the combined elements where, all right, uh, clearly you're not going to be able to model two cockpits or a front seat and a back seat, at least at this point in time. So you've got elements that you might have from your back seater, um, kind of all mushed onto the front, but it's, it's done in a very, very, uh, feasible way. And, um, you know, the focus was never on, oh, this isn't a realistic F-15 cock, but it just, wow, this is, you know, this is both a lot of fun and I feel, you know, realistic. So it's, it's a good balance and in lockstep with, you know, Microprose titles that would follow on even, you know, throughout, you know, to the, to the kind of the heyday of when they were cranking out flight sims left and right. And I think the companies that would go on to make, you know, flight sims going forward owe a lot to MicroPro's and these early ones that really... You know whether it was MicroPose or other companies that tried and failed, or you know, kind of you know, till they got it right. But they very clearly got it right, and they had a big advantage. I mean, the you know founding member, um, you know, major major Bill Steely was you know had you know wanted to bring as much of kind of realism and experience to it as he could, and uh, this is this is just a great title, and this was ported you know everywhere, and it, it went on to live in you know F-15 Strike Eagle two II and three and. Uh, I believe there's an ST version of at least one of those, um, oh, yeah. and so yeah. on and so forth. So this is uh, this is this is really really well done. And the the other uh, kind of notion that um, I, I mentioned a little bit with Hellcat Ace, but the snapshot in history of uh, I kind of mentioned the incident that happened with Libya, um, just yeah. to and, and kind of viewed it through the historical context of what you know who what was important, what was what was viewed as kind of a, a conflict that would be believable for people. Uh, and to actually read this this kind of five- or six-page addendum, um, it's it's amazing. It talks about, um, you know, now we're kind of getting into a little bit of fiction, but it, it talks about the Libyan mission, and you should fly, you should choose this mission, an F-15 strike eagle, if you want to replicate <laughs> this part of the attack that happened in Libya. There, I think you go to um, you go to North Korea. You go to you know somewhere other place in the Middle East, Syria. It talks about uh, you know some of it's hypothetical. What if you know? It talks about Iraq, mm. you know, achieving nuclear status, and it's just like you know happened to be Iran, of course, in the in the actual kind of um, yep. you know yeah, present day. Later, yeah, but some of this, it's I mean. It, as much as it, you look at things that were written in kind of the, you know, whether it was the Cold War or whatever conflict was really kind of on people's minds at the time to the sense that um, it would be believable. So like an enemy, common enemy in video games, I mean, it might be the Russians, it might be, um, you know, some sort of uh, in the World War II era, it's okay, it's the Germans or it's the Japanese or vice versa. And you have, you know, Allied and Axis and the lines are all pretty clear, but it's just <laughs> remarkable to go back and read some of this stuff 30 years later and some of it you could just drop right into headlines today it's just <laughs> a little bit spooky in that way um the other one that i'll mention just very briefly there's a game called in it was a c64 port but very very well done not quite a flight simulator per se but raid right over moscow uh, it's one of my all-time favorites uh maybe a subject for another show another time but the, there's a crawl that goes by, a kind of scrolling text, where it gives you this uh, almost like a Tom Clancy-like historical backdrop for the kind of the backstory of the game, and it's it's all about like you know the Salt One Treaty and you know the U.S. you know moving to help Saudi Arabia and all this. It's just amazingly interesting to look at that 30 years later and to think this is, this would have absolutely been plausible and you know 30 years ago because this is kind of what was on people's minds you know, nuclear war and all the rest of this um yeah. but then you know however many years later to look back and go you oh, know they got a few things right you know this then it's just kind of so i think these games are, are certainly so much fun to play uh but there's there's a historical piece there whether it was actually you know in, in kind of truly based on history or whether it's historical fiction and uh, a point that might uh interest folks who might not otherwise be interested in flight simulators but are perhaps interested in you know the history of the 80s or you know kind of large scale kind of conflicts and kind of a, a nod to something like war games where uh, I find that just very very interesting. But flight uh, F-15 Strike Eagle just a, a great simulator still holds up today um, and just uh, and just really really well done. Can't can't say enough good things about it.
0: Yeah yeah it's definitely my favorite flight simulator. It's you know it, it yeah the missions you had the. Just the playability, the the speed at which it you know refreshed. uh...
2: Yeah, just a a very very satisfying um, experience on the eight bit, and um, you know if it it really filled in the gaps for that it maybe been hinted at by other simulators. Where if you start from mission one and go all the way through, it gets very very difficult. If you finish that last mission, that's got like I think it's got three objectives. Boy, you really really feel like you actually did something. It's really uh, you know it's quite tough. It's doable. Especially at uh, novice, but boy, if you crank it up to, you know, I think even on medium, I don't think I ever got through the all of them. I came close, but yeah, and I, was f- I just, forget how
0: the difficulty levels how they changed stuff. But there was something on.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it was, you know, was it was it AI? Were the you know did the I, I can't remember. Did uh, I don't know. That's yeah. that's, that's that's worth uh, maybe worth maybe revisiting yeah. at some point. But uh, but yeah, but but really, really, really well done, and. Uh, Kind of set the gold standard at the time. You know, MicroProse was certainly present, and they, they did they did other non simulator games. Certainly, Floyd of the Jungle comes to mind, and uh, Chopper Rescue, and some others. But um, this really, if they weren't on the map before, this really established them as kind of a, you know a dominant force in, in simulation, and uh, they would be that really going forward for for many years to come on across you know different platforms and 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 whatnot. So yeah, yeah definitely definitely a good one.
0: And did you say the, these guys eventually merge with um, Spectrum Holobyte? Is that right?
2: Oh yeah. So so this is um, so Sid Meier. Uh, I think certainly uh, it's interesting though. So you had Sid Meier's solo Flight, you know, and Sid Meier's name all over Hellcat Ace and uh, and the others. But it's really not. It's there, but it's not elite. It's not Sid Meier's F-15 Strike Eagle. So um, you know, certainly you'd have to think the you know major bill was was right in there involved. Um, but Andy Hollis is given kind of lead programmer, because so I think this this was a team effort. Basically, um, you know, no one person could really claim, you know, it, that it's because it was just such a such an enormously uh, kind of immersive sim. But um, so the history of Microprose, just briefly, um, so they would you know kind of go on and and go through to the uh, to the early '90s, and they actually got gobbled up by Spectrum Holobyte, who's famous for producing you know, quite a bit in the, you know, MS-DOS era, but uh, probably most famously Falcon. And Falcon, Falcon, three, right, yeah. Falcon 3.0 is kind of the, uh, if, uh, you know, if Microsoft Light Slimenter is the standard by which all others are kind of measured, you know, once you get, uh, certainly once you get to like 88 or 89, Falcon in its various versions, and then especially Falcon 3.0 was kind of a showcase for the uh, for the 386, and you could, it actually had a, a, a uh, a kind of a more realistic flight model that would be sort of unlocked if you had a floating point coprocessor in 8387 which very few people had but it made it even more realistic which is this huge huge scope project the ma- famously the manual is like uh would be deadly in in some sort of uh you know, the food <laughs> fight i mean it's just like 400 pages in the box it's just this huge hulking thing many many floppy disks and uh uh so spectrum Holobyte um you know they 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 gobbled up Microsoft in '93, and Sid Meier departed in '96 to form Firaxis Games. And of course, Sid Meier would go on to do Civilization and you know many many kind of other games. You know above and beyond kind of maybe stepping out of the simulation simulation realm. But MicroProse, even though they were kind of a subsidiary of Spectrum Holobyte, what they continued to release things under their kind of name, and they had a few studios associated with them, MPS Labs, and kind of various points around the kind of North America. Um, and in, you know, e- even kind of leading up to, you know, before and after the acquisition, they were really churning out a lot. I mean, they, they put out a staggering number of flight sims for the, you know, for the PC and, you know, certainly some for the Amiga and Atari ST. But would go on all the way up to 2003. I think Gunship 2000 was one of the last ones that, that they did. Uh, in kind of the uh, leaving the dust and going into the Windows era, um, but you know they had a they had a really good run. Yeah, the it's
0: longer uh, than most for sure.
2: And it, even with the you know kind of being it being allowed to exist as uh, and kind of keep the name and not being completely folded into Spectrum Allbyte, uh, I think helped them because they could definitely Spectrum Holobyte probably saw quite a bit of value there to where whether it was 8-bit folks or, you know, could kind of know that, well, you know, F-15 Strike Eagle or Silent Service or any of the other kind of various sims that were pushing the boundaries and constraints of, you know, of hardware from, you know, several generations ago that that carried a lot of weight. And it, it really did. And they um, – it's just – it has to be 40 or 50 just flight simulators that were released. And they, they they kind of went all over the place. They went, you know, tried to dip their toes into – there's a, a one that I'm really fond of called ATAC, which is uh, – um, I can't remember the acronym, but it was kind of this notion that, all right, let's do a flight simulator, but let's kind of bring the war on drugs into it and let's introduce some type of, you know, ability to manage some kind of troops on the ground or like a small kind of expeditionary force. So, uh, so they weren't afraid to certainly push limits later on. Whereas you can look at the stuff they did, which is kind of definitely groundbreaking in the ape, but realm and they continue to, uh, kind of evolve and, uh, and adapt as, as going forward. So they're, uh, you know, I'd certainly love to uh, be a fly on the wall for a few of those meetings or, you know, I, I, I kind of hope that uh, maybe some sort of developer diary or, you know, the, the famous ones from Jordan Mechner, the, you know, the stuff he did. Right, and yeah you know, Karateka and Prince of Persia, if somebody would do that for F fifteen Strike Eagle or any solo flight, it would just be Oh uh, yeah,
0: wouldn't that be great if
2: they... it would be just be great. It would be so interesting and just from from all aspects, from the you know, pitching into the marketing to the, you know, hardware to the porting different systems to uh just the to the really technical stuff like what a little bit of what we were able to get into here with oh, you know, it's text mode or displays. I just find all of that so compelling and uh I can't be the only one. So yeah. but uh but yeah. Um but that's yeah. So that's that's MicroProse and F-15 Strike Eagle, and definitely um, paved the way for many sims to come. But it's still uh, a really great product, and I think for sure holds up today.
0: Yep, great game, a great uh, great way to end this show. I was talking yes. about the my one of my favorite flight sims of all time. And uh, sure.
2: Mine too.
0: Yeah. So I, I thank you very much, Chris, for coming on the show. It's been sure great having you for the second half doing the military sims. And yeah, we'll have you back at some point. We'll talk about Blue Max.
2: All right. Sounds good. One of my all-time favorites. I can't wait.
0: Glad you could make time and out of your busy schedule. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Sure thing. So. All right. Well, thanks again, Chris. And we'll talk to you then.
2: So all right. Sounds good, sir. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye.
0: Well, thanks again to Chris. And... And apologize to everybody for the delay in which I've uh, (laughs) not been very timely getting this out and published, but I appreciate your patience. It's been great talking to Chris. I really appreciate his depth of knowledge in both the Atari and flying. It's been really instructional talking to him, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So hope you have too. Wouldn't be me if I didn't talk about some technical stuff. So I looked at the display list for F-15 Strike Eagle. So the top half of the screen is all, it's Mode E, so it's Graphics 7 Plus. There's a 100 lines of that. And then the bottom... So, you know, 90 or so lines is Antic Mode 4. As Chris and I noticed, it plays pretty well. You know, it's pretty fast. There's, It's definitely, oh, if I had to guess frames per second, it's probably, I don't know, four to five frames a second, which is really not bad considering all the stuff it's got to do. It doesn't use any terrain, you know, it uses these grid lines and stuff, but it's got a full roll, you know, it can do a 360-degree roll. And the way it does it, you know, it draws these grid lines on the ground, but it, it sort of cheats. So behind the grid lines, back then I didn't really notice this, but if you look at the grid lines, the grid lines are drawn in regular Graphic 7+. plus resolution you know so they're, they're fine but behind it the horizon line which is the only division between the colors you know it's it's the sky and the ground the horizon line is actually drawn in stepped four pixel blocks and four pixels wide in um, graphic 7 plus is a byte so they're cheating a little bit so instead of drawing a full like brisenham line algorithm to, to do the fill of the sky versus the ground they do it in bytes so it's much easier just to blast out bytes and having to worry about that that boundary change so that's what I looked at in terms of the technical stuff in terms of the the company itself, there's an interesting tale of, of Microprose, as as Chris alluded to, they were they were purchased uh, Spectrum Holobyte purchased them, and in turn Spectrum Holobyte was purchased by Hasbro Interactive. Hasbro purchased the intellectual property of Atari from the Tremels and JTS back when the Atari did the JTS reverse merger as they were sort of going through their JTS bankruptcy, they sold off stuff and so Hasbro purchased Atari. So Hasbro at that time owned Microprose, Spectrum Holobyte, the Atari IP. But then Hasbro, the corporate entity, decided to sell off Hasbro Interactive. So they sold that to Infogrom, And the, the zombified shambling remains of Atari, currently now, in the end of 2015, owns Microprose, Spectrum Holobyte, and the rights to the F-15 Strike Eagle franchise. And just as a late addition here, Paul Hexman posted on Twitter some scans of F-15 Strike Eagle, and uh, Chris Olson was looking at it too. And so there's different releases of the F-15. I guess they called them changes. So there's Paul posted a picture of the flight operation manual... Change 6, which was published July 15th, 1986. And he's got some scans for the manuals that I will post in the show notes as well. I alluded to some announcements and stuff that I'm going to make. Uh, what it is going to be is some code. I'm really getting into interested in coding again. I'm getting the bug, like, big time. So I've been working on a project that's not directly coding-related, but Kevin Savitz has been helping me beta test it. I'm not quite ready to announce it because I want to announce it with the next episode, which is going to be covering a game that... I've sort of mentioned on Twitter, but I'm not going to mention right here just to, I don't know, increase the suspense. I don't know. But with this, with my increased um, desire to do some coding, the frequency at which I've been publishing episodes, even as as slow as it's been, is going to go down. So I think from between now and the the end of the next retro challenge, the summer one, so between now and um, end of July of 2016, I'm going to mostly take a hiatus from the podcast production. There's one more episode definitely coming in the next month or so. Or, well, as soon as I can finish this this program that's sort of related to the next episode. But after that, it'll probably be... Yeah, I'm not saying I won't publish anything, but I'm not guaranteeing that, w- that I will publish anything, actually. So what I am going to be is trying to be active, developing both for the Retro Challenge in January and the one in um, July. And also, what I want to do is enter something for the Atari Bitbiter Users Club 2016 game competition. I have an idea for a game, and it might be too big. And... I may have to start out with something small just to kind of get my 6502 feet wet again. But I have an idea for a bigger game that, you know, you pretty much using all the features of the Atari, the scrolling, player missile graphics, the tile-based animation, the one thing I don't really have experience and or skill in is sound. So if you want to collaborate with some sound stuff for a game, let me know. I've, I've already bugged Paul Nerman of the Televisionaries, and I uh, hopefully I'm going to borrow some music from him. But if you're interested in doing some sound effects and collaborating on that for a game please let me know. I have no idea how to generate sound. I think uh, it's just, you know, I have a pretty good ear for music, but I don't know how to create any music. I'm not musically talented at all. But yeah, so the state of the podcast is, is I am likely going to have one more episode in the next like eight months, <laughs> possibly more and um, possibly retool it. The one thing I'm thinking about is the, the one thing that's hard, hardest for me is getting time to do a proper game review. And so I'd like to have your comments about, what do you would think if I would just drop the game reviews entirely or go to a very, say, cursory review of some game rather than kind of the in-depth technical stuff? And I, you know, I like the in-depth te- technical review, but it just takes a long time. And right now I'm just more interested in, in trying a little bit of coding. I don't know. It's We're in flux here for the next eight months or so. But yeah, send me some feedback. Let me know what you think. Um, I'm not going to say it's going to change my mind. I'm, I'm definitely going to take some sort of hiatus from doing episodes regularly. I kind of like Wade's concept of seasons. I wish I would have started that, but I don't really have a season. It's kind of breaking it up, at you know, from before March 1982 is kind of an oddball season. But yeah, I'm really interested in taking a break to kind of do some coding. And, uh, yeah, so there it is. Fortunately, we have the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast to kind of pick up the game review slack. And it's not like I'm going away. I will return to do the podcasts for sure. But for the time being, yeah, expect some <laughs> reduced output for me, at least in terms of the podcast. I do hope to have some coding output increase. And so I'll keep the updated via Twitter and on the website and maybe a you know, small announcement through the podcast feed. We'll have to see about that. But thank you all for listening. I appreciate all the feedback I've gotten. I've really enjoyed you know meeting all the listeners I have, all the podcasters, all the people I've met sort of virtually through the podcast. It's been, uh, been a lot of fun. And I don't mean to sound like I'm you know, signing off of the podcast for good or something because I'm not, but I don't think I've said thank you enough for all that I've received from this podcast. Now, interestingly, in Toastmasters, it was a, after you gave a speech, you never, you were coached not to say thank you because there's really an audience that should, should thank the speaker for giving the time. And so I, you know, I, I kind of sort of subconsciously anyway have not said a lot of thank yous in the podcast, but, um, I do thank you for listening. You know, I've gotten enough feedback that it does keep me going. And even though, you know, it's a lot of work and, you know, you don't get paid for it and a lot of time every day, you know, time where I could have been, I could be doing work and getting paid for that. And so it's, you know, financially it's a net negative, but, and, you know, I'm not asking for donations. I would never ask for donations for anything. You know, taking money for the podcast would result in expectations from the audience. And from my perspective as the producer, it's nice not to have that responsibility to anyone. You know, I can do what I want uh, with the show and when I have time to do it. And ultimately you can listen or you don't have to, but it's not, not nice not having the added pressure of, you know, people paying money and then having expectations. But despite not making money, it's it's not to say that I don't get value from this. If there weren't some sort of benefit that I was getting out of it, I wouldn't be doing it. And the benefit that I'm getting out of it is, you know, sort of the ability to to talk. I've noticed my comfort level improve dramatically from when I first started this to now. You know, I don't use any notes anymore, and I thought that was impossible when I was, you know, first starting out. I had to write everything down and and you know virtually have a bulleted list of every single thing I was gonna say. And now, you know, I'm kind of surprised at how well I can bring up stuff off the top of my head. Yeah. And it's not to say, you know, certainly there's some, there's some production work in this and there's a lot of, a lot of pausing where I look up stuff or, you know, just think of the next thing to say. And I, you know, compress all that. So you never hear it, the amount of time that actually goes into this. But yeah, if I were not getting any benefit out of this, I would stop doing it. And that's not the case. So you are my guinea pigs in some sense. You know, you're listening to me develop my skills <laughs> such as they are, but I thank you for being here to listen with me. It's been great fun, but I still have a long way to go. You know, I'm not even to the magazines that I <laughs> read back when I had an Atari, so i definitely, definitely going to continue. As we close out here, here's a song from the Atari Sat Music Archive. Its author is uncredited, but I bet you'll know what the title is. Let's see who can get it first. Uh, send me feedback at Twitter, um, at Atari8bitgames, and via email, send me a note at feedback at playermissile.com. Let's see who gets it first. <laughs> but yeah, no points for doing it, because if you were around in the US during the time period of the Ataris, you will know what this song is. So yeah, maybe we'll see how long it takes for people to guess this. So yeah, one more episode before the hiatus, but I'm definitely looking forward to this next episode. I've got a great interview with a game author. I'm gonna have some stuff to announce, some software to distribute, stuff maybe you can use. Really excited about it, and uh, thanks again to Kevin Savitz for helping me beta test to work out some of the bugs before we get to a little wider audience. So I will talk to you next episode for a surprise game review and some software. In the meantime, don't forget to check out the other Atari 8-bit podcasts. Antic, Inverse the 5200 Game by Game podcast, and now the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Also don't forget to check out the Throwback Network, of which I'm a member. That has a lot of retro-themed podcasts, and I'm sure you'll find some others that you're very in- interested in as well. So I will see you next episode.